I'm not a social conservative, but I think that this teaching approach, which we label traditional teaching, is more effective uh, and um, is certainly more effective for those who are, you know, his historically um, have been disproportionately badly affected by ineffective teaching. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Rethinking Education podcast. I'm going to try and keep this introduction brief because this is quite a long episode, but it's a really interesting time to be making a podcast called Rethinking Education. It would appear that I'm not the only one with reform on my mind. I don't know if you've noticed, but there has been a plethora of articles in the broadsheets and education press recently about the need to use the opportunity that the COVID pandemic has afforded us to rethink and reform the way in which we educate our children and young people. There are also committees springing up and conferences and organisations like Rethinking Assessment and Square Pegs and School Differently. It really feels like there's a head of steam building at the moment around the need for education reform. And that's amazing and entirely welcome in my view, but it also means the clock is ticking. If we're going to grab this opportunity to hit reset in a really big way, and goodness me, we need to. It's really important that we get this right. Moments like this come around once in a lifetime, and the only way to help shape the conversation is to get involved in any way that you can. One thing that you can do is tell people about this podcast and to join the growing community that surrounds it. It's less than three weeks since I announced that we had reached our first 1,000 downloads. We've now already doubled that figure, which is as wonderful as it is welcome. Maybe this is just the normal growth curve for new podcasts, I don't know, but it feels like we might just be at the start of something exponential. So I would like to take this opportunity to welcome any new listeners to suggest that you go back and listen to some previous episodes, there's some really good ones, and also to signpost you towards the Mighty Network, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the online community that is similarly blossoming and growing in numbers. It's a place where listeners to the show can come together to interact with me and my guests and with one another. There are some lovely examples on there of people collaborating and sharing ideas with one another. There's currently around 150 people in this community which have come together with very little fanfare from me and it's a lovely thing indeed. Imagine Twitter but with all the horror stripped out. So do come and join us. You can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app and searching for Rethinking Education. Okay, on to today's guest. If you're as interested in productivity as I am, you might want to grab your journal. Adam Boxer is head of science at what he describes as a great secondary comprehensive school in Barnet in North London and he's a prolific tweeter and blogger. His blog, A Chemical Orthodoxy, recently tipped over a million readers, and considering that Adam only recently joined the fold of bloggers, that's really quite impressive. 
As you will hear, this is the thin end of the wedge of Adam's prolific output, and he is a rare example of someone who's been able to have quite a significant impact on the wider school system while still teaching full-time, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. This, as always, listeners, is a fascinating conversation in which we discuss neo-traditionalism, some excellent practical tips on behaviour management and reducing workload, and the thin slither of Twitter beef that Adam and I had, which led to his coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Adam Boxer, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you so much. I feel very welcome. Good stuff. It's really good to uh, to get to spend some time with you and to get to know you a little. Um, as you know, this podcast is called Rethinking Education. And by its nature, the very phrase Rethinking Education is kind of a progressive idea, as in, you know, wanting things to progress, to change, to sort of to move forward in some way. Um, and traditionalists tend to be sort of more conservative, right? The whole idea is that you want traditional ideas to remain in place or to even perhaps be even more elevated. Um, and so this podcast has been only been going for a month or so, but I think it's fair to say that all the guests that I've had on so far could be characterised as being broadly progressive in their outlook. Um, but you are the first person who's been on the show who um, I think will be happy to be described as traditionalist. Um, in fact, you've been described yourself as lefty trad. Uh, you wrote a piece called Lefty Trad. Um, are you still happy with that label of lefty trad or traditionalist or neo-traditionalist? And if so, can we perhaps begin by exploring what that word or that phrase means to you? Um, yes. No, <laughs> you don't start with the easy ones, do you? <laughs> Um, am I still happy with lefty trad? Yes, uh, I do consider myself a lefty, um, despite, um, you know, I guess wider politically, um, I've, I felt probably quite similar to a lot of people that I felt politically homeless for a while, um, because despite being left wing, I'm still a liberal and I felt that, you know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's party wasn't for me. However, I still did not, would never vote um, for anyone even approaching uh, the Conservative Party. Um, so yeah, definitely in terms of like, in terms of like what it actually means to be left wing, <laughs> yeah, like put, putting my money where my mouth is, yeah, I consider myself left wing politically, economically, socially. Um, and in that article that you referenced, Lefty Tread, um, I think the point I was trying to make is that. I, I'm a traditionalist teacher because I'm left-wing. Uh, the, the two things go together. So despite the fact that traditionalism um, is associated with uh, conservative education policy, and especially uh, what Michael Gove brought in, um, am I allowed to say his name on this podcast or do you just bleep it out? Is that how it works? No, of course, yeah. Mention who you like. <laughs> um, my, I think my... My, the, the way the way I tie these things together is that I think for a long time we were doing education in a way that wasn't as effective um, as it could have been. Uh, everything that we do in education works to some extent. So it's about comparing two things together. Um, I think for a long time we did things in a way that did not improve outcomes, even though 
Uh, it was almost like we thought they were improving outcomes. So, you know, things like 5A star to C were skyrocketing from when it was introduced, but like uh, standardized international outcomes were stagnating. So our scores on TIMS, PEARLS, PISA, every single international standardized assessment was just like flatlining. Um, but 5A star to C were going through the roof. We had major issues with um with just curriculum so you know i can speak mainly for the science curriculum the science curriculum was was wafer thin included this completely bananas controlled assessment that was just like a total joke and didn't actually help anybody um and and yes i think we were dominated beyond curriculum but in the actual classroom um in terms of pedagogy styles of teaching we were dominated by um things which were both bad ideas um just i think now everybody would recognize as bad ideas so you know you won't find many uh, education academics that say to you that will stand up in public and say yeah um you know brain gym or neurolinguistic whatever it was or vac or whatever are really good ideas you won't find many of them will stand up and say that now but like those ideas did dominate and certainly um teaching strategies that are still promoted um by many you know whether or not they call themselves progressive we can talk about labels later on like this you know it's still you know I would say very, very common um, to hear that students learn best by discovery uh, or inquiry is the best way to teach uh, or group work is the savior or if children are misbehaving it's because you're not engaging enough uh, or a skills-based curriculum is more appropriate than a knowledge-based curriculum, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I think those lead to um or, or even you know even if you take the you know it hasn't been so noisy recently but last year there were big debates about things like restorative justice in the absence of consequence um and especially the ban the booths the ban the booths oh and no more exclusions you know those kind of kinds of position to hold um the the they were the kind of things that used to be just like normal like you'd say them and nobody would have a problem with that. Now they're considered like, oh, you know, I'm going to put my head above the parapet with those nasty trads and say something like, I don't think schools should ever exclude anybody. Um, you know, stuff along those lines. Um, and and brought... Oh, um, it, sorry, I was just yeah, going to go say, should we just briefly, just in case people aren't familiar with Ban the Booth, so that was a, a, a in relation to the practice of having isolation rooms, and in, in particular that some schools have sort of like desk dividers and some of them have more sort of deep, like what are described as isolation booths, and some people were saying that that was somehow, you know, like uh, unethical practice or something, just in case people weren't clear what that was. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I should have been clear, I apologise, but yeah, that's... That's uh, that was the campaign. Um, and essentially, broadly, my personal feelings um, as I've developed both in terms of my personal experience in the classroom, uh, as well as my uh, increased reading of the evidence base, is that policies like that tend to disproportionately um, affect the worse off. So, for example, you know, Wellington College, right, which does a lot of progressive teaching, lots of you know, group work and hippie type stuff. Uh, and that's fine. That works for them and they get great outcomes and I've got no problem with it. Um, but when it happens in, you know, your standard state comp, you end up um, penalizing the students who essentially come to the classroom with the least. You know, when it comes to things like discovery learning or any time that the teacher isn't being the center 
or the source of all knowledge. Um, you are to an extent relying on your students. Your students rely on their own prior knowledge as a crutch to help them through. So the more prior knowledge they have, the easier the lesson will be for them. Now, of course, um, you know, the students who on average, by the way, I'm always talking on averages, the students who on average come to the class with the least prior knowledge are the ones from the least affluent backgrounds, uh, the ones who might not have had, you know, tons of, uh, you know, rich, diverse, broad, cultural, historical, scientific experiences uh, outside of the classroom. Um, and that, that, you know, that leads to them being somewhat disadvantaged once they come into the classroom. So the lefty trad hybrid is me saying, you know, I'm not a social conservative, but I think that this teaching approach, which we label traditional teaching, is more effective uh, and um, is certainly more effective for those who are, you know, his historically um, have been disproportionately badly affected by ineffective teaching. There's a lot of affected there in a lot of things I said, but hopefully that made sense. <laughs> it made perfect sense. Thank you. And I know I didn't ease you in with any small talk, but that was a very fulsome and comprehensive answer to that question. So thank you. I definitely have that inclination at parties. I just go straight in with the big questions. It makes me quite unpopular. So, so <laughs> I mean, you're not alone in this, um, you know, in this lefty trad lane, if you like. You know, there are lots of people who identify with that phrase and it became a sort of a bit of a hashtag on Twitter. Um, people like I know that E.D. Hirsch has described himself as practically a socialist and it's quite an interesting idea because people often assume that people of the left politically are more likely to be progressive educationally perhaps because of like an association with progressive taxation perhaps I don't really know um, but it does seem to be the, often the case that people on the left politically are quite traditional in their views on education for precisely the reasons that you that you just articulated. Um, I mean, it's also been said that people are sometimes, you know, often even conservative about the things that they know best, right? And so, you know, that might be a thing. And so teachers tend to sort of want to stick to what they know. Um, and this might be my assumption, but it's sometimes it's interesting when I was saying earlier about how sort of progressivism is about change and traditionalism is about sort of wanting to preserve things. That might also be a bit of an unfair characterization. It's something that might be interesting to explore. Like you could argue, for example, that re in recent years, this sort of this rise of what you might refer to as neo-traditionalism could be seen as a reaction against that emphasis on skills that you were just talking about and other things that was you know proliferated under the new labor years and so maybe neo-traditionalism sort of started out as a revolutionary movement in the sense that it was sort of reclaiming the ground and then it became more conservative once you know i think that now that you know the offset framework reflects a much more traditional outlook and so does the assessment regime and so on and so i suppose you know people say that even the most ardent revolutionary becomes a conservative the day after the revolution. So maybe the neo-traditionalists are more conservative now because they're like, okay, we seem to have reclaimed some sort of ground in terms of you know making things more about a knowledge-rich curriculum and traditional approaches to behavior management and so on. Uh, do you think that that's fair to say? Yeah, I completely agree. I think I think the the this debate is an old one. This is not a new debate. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I found the earliest example that I could find of this debate in the Babylonian Talmud, right? Sixth century, <laughs> right? I'm not joking. You think I'm joking? So you've got two no, rabbis. I don't think right? you're joking. Go on. You've got two rabbis and they're arguing, right? Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Chista. And I can't remember which way around it goes, but one of them says to the other, you know, if God forbids. So, by the way, you know, so for your listeners, 
benefit. I'm Jewish. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I take my Judaism very seriously. Um, and these two rabbis are arguing. And the Talmud is all about rabbis arguing with each other. And one of them says, if God forbids the Torah were ever forgotten from the people. So the Torah is the Hebrew Bible, um, but it's also everything that comes after that. So it's a vast, vast corpus of, of litigation, of philosophy, of story, everything, the whole works. And he says, uh, where was it? So he says, if God forbids the Torah were ever forgotten from the Jewish people, I would, re- I would return it with my pilpul. And pilpul is basically oracy. Uh, it's like straight up didactics. It's standing up in an arena and giving a lecture to hundreds of people. And then, uh, so that's what he says. And then the other guy, Rabbi Chia or Rabbi Chista, whichever one it was, he says, I would, um, I'd go out and I'd hunt some deer and I'd catch some deer and I'd skin them and I'd use their skin as vellum or like a, like a parchment. He turned the skin into parchment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said he'd, he would take uh, six deer skins and he would write the, the, um, the books of the Mishnah, which is one of the main law sources on each one of the skins. He would find six children. He would teach one to each child and then they would each teach the other the remaining bits. So by the end, you'd have six children who all knew it because they'd been taught it. They've been taught, you know, one sixth by the teacher and then five sixths by their colleagues. And then they would go out and disperse uh, the knowledge amongst the people. And as far as I'm concerned, this is a key uh, example of the difference between an approach which looks at the uh, which looks, I guess, at the teacher as the, as the font and the source of all knowledge and the approach that says, no, it's much better to, to disperse and give little bits to different people and let them then uh, bounce off each other and teach each other. Now, of course, it's not an exact proxy and there'll be uh, grey-bearded lecturers telling me, well, that's not what I mean when I talk about <laughs> social constructivism or whatever. But I think it's a, I think it's a good story anyway. Um, I don't know where the word traditionalism or progressive came from in terms of the, like the history. They are the labels that we've got. They're what we go for. Yeah, could traditionalism be something else? I prefer explicit teachers. So I prefer as a philosophy if people would call us the explicit teachers. Um, but traditionalism seems to be what it is and it's stuck. So, you know, what do I care? Yeah, thank you. That is fascinating. I did, um, I'm just looking it up. I, the, the earliest um, that I previously have found was 1632. So you predated me by about a, a thousand years then. But there's a quote by John Amos Comenius who was, is often described as the father of modern education. Um, he's a philosopher. Uh, he, he wrote, let the beginning and end of our didactics be, seek and find the methods where the teacher teaches less, but they who sit in the desks learn more. Let schools have less rush, less antipathy and less vain effort, and more well-being, convenience and permanent gain. So you're right, you know, the, these arguments and this, this discussion has a long and distinguished history um, and it doesn't seem like it's going like, like to dissipate anytime soon. There is, I should probably sort of say at the outset, I would quite like to come back to this conversation at the end, um, but the, um, the reason that you're on this podcast um, is because it sort of came out of an exchange that we recently had on Twitter where I wrote something, I wouldn't call it beef, It would that would definitely be overstating the case. It's very thin, is it called a carpaccio or something? A very like, we'll call it a carpaccio of beef. Oh, I love beef carpaccio. <laughs> so do I. Uh, and this was this was a tasty bit. So, so, so I wrote a tweet um, that, that, that actually, just listening back, I just published my interview with Guy Claxton uh, yesterday, and it, it, the, I think the reason that I tweeted this, because it's something that I said almost verbatim in the conversation, where I, I, I wrote, Neo-traditionalism sells an attractively simple story. Knowledge is foundational, and learning is memory. 
Therefore, we only need to double down on teaching subject knowledge and helping kids remember stuff and all will be well, if only it were true. Um, now, obviously, there's a bit of brevity in there because this is Twitter and you have to sort of, you know, be succinct. Um, and there's a lot more to it than, 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 I'm, than I expressed there. But um, you uh, took exception to this. You, you responded that you thought that this, you said, that's not true at all. It's a big straw man. Um, and kindly, you said, I think you're better than that. So obviously, you've, you've got, <laughs> you hold me in at least some esteem, uh, or at least you did. And we went on to have a further exchange, which I'm keen to explore in more detail but I think that we should do that at the end of this conversation, if that's okay. Oh. I think that part of the problem that we see so often on Twitter is that people are sort of banging their heads together without ever really taking the time to understand their interlocutor. Like, who, who is this person that I'm disagreeing with and why do they think what they think? And that's sort of like the whole idea of this show, right, is that, you know, in, on some podcasts, people often begin by saying, just tell me, you know, like a one minute summary of your life to date sort of thing. People go, oh, OK, like went to school, became a teacher, blah, 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 had a big thing and now here I am. And I always think that's the most interesting bit of the story. Like, let's blow that up. And so probably the first sort of half-ish of each show has been talking about the person and the journey that they have been on um, to get to the point where you are. And then we'll think about the rethinking education stuff. And then we'll come back to this, to this carpaccio of beef at the end, if we may. Sounds good to me. Okay, good stuff. So as someone who has an interest in productivity, perhaps an unhealthy interest in productivity. I have to say that I am just hugely impressed with how prolific and productive you seem to be. Here's a brief summary of the things that I'm aware of that you um, do or have done recently with your time. Let's see if I captured all the main things. So you teach full time, you're a head of department, aren't you? A head, head of science. Yep. Uh, and a chemistry, is your degree in chemistry? My degree is in chemistry, yeah. Yeah, so chemistry teacher, she's a, a, a recurring theme of the podcast, weirdly. I was also a chemistry teacher and two previous guests, Ian Cunningham and Guy Claxton, both also did degrees in chemistry. Make of that what you well, will. You've um, got good taste. <laughs> it's, I, it's, I, I adore it as a subject. It really makes sense in a way that physics just never did to me. Like, it just fits together like Lego and it's really logical and it gives you such an insight into how the world works. Um, so, big fan of chemistry. Well, it's great fun, and I'm hiring, by the way, so if you ever feel like stepping back into the classroom, then uh, you just let me know, yeah? Wow, even, okay, let's see if you still, still the offer still holds by the end of this conversation. Um, so, you're also a parent of two young children, which is, you know, yep. no mean ticket. So, you know, straight away, head of department, two young kids, like, for most people, that's like, okay, that's plenty to be getting on with. But you do all this other stuff as well. So, you've got, you write a blog, which I saw recently just ticked over a million hits or a million visitors. Um, which is a lot. Uh, so that's a chemical orthodoxy. You've written revision guides. You edited the research, research ed book on uh, explicit and direct instruction. You wrote a whole lot of lessons for Oak National, the, the thing that was set up to sort of to support schools and parents during the pandemic. Uh, did you write in the, was it over 40? I did 44, yeah. So it's four a week for 11 weeks. That's a huge amount, because it, and it's really time-consuming, isn't it? Recording stuff and editing it is a very time-consuming process. I tell you, James, it was the worst period of my life. It was absolutely dreadful, because it, was, it wasn't really 11 weeks. It was more like nine, because I had to get all mine done before paternity leave, um, because my wife was heavily pregnant, um, and I was looking after my three-year-old daughter every day. 
so essentially i was looking after sophia um the, oh that's right this is when the nurseries were closed yeah the nursery exactly nurseries were closed so i was looking after her monday tuesday wednesday thursday and then basically doing my job which was being the head of department of a school working remotely and doing these lessons for oak essentially like in the evenings on the weekends and it takes it took hours and hours to do these recorded videos there were multiple levels of um quality assurance and like i was lucky you know i was i was supported and everyone was really collaborative and helpful and stuff but it was absolute hell mm. and i was i was working and i was working the no, uh, the hours that a normal person would be working in a week but i was doing it in the evenings and on weekends yeah it was it was grim Yes, I remember. I remember seeing some. Uh, I mean, it was in, an incredible effort, and so many teachers stepped up and contributed to that project. And it yep. was it was absolutely phenomenal the way that that unfolded. Um, so, and also, so you you're the co-founder of a thing called Carousel Learning, which uh, yep. is sort of came out of Retrieval Roulette, wasn't it? That's correct. Just yeah. explain to people briefly what Retrieval Roulette and Carousel are. Yeah. So Retrieval Roulette was a. Um... So evidence tells us that an effective study technique is retrieval practice, which is the act of being quizzed as opposed to rereading or highlighting or summarizing content. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because it puts lie to the old adage, which is you don't um, make a pig fatter by weighing it. Uh, in reality, doing low stakes tests do help our memories. Uh, they help our retention. They, you know, they, they slow the process of the inevitable process of forgetting. Yeah. Um, so the retrieval roulette was really just this very simple Excel program where you write in a whole load of questions and answers. So a question might be, I don't know, define an element or define a molecule or what is a compound. It might be slightly more complex than that. So explain why sodium is more reactive than lithium or whatever. Um, and then the Excel spreadsheet, you just told it how many questions you wanted and it spat them out in random order and put them on the board for you. So you'd start up your lesson, you'd open the retrieval roulette, you'd say, I'm up to question 183, that's ionic bond. I'd like five questions, please. And it would just put five questions randomly selected from that on the board. Um, and it was a great program. Um, and it became an amazing collaborative success. I had you know, dozens of teachers contributing their own versions. You know, I can contribute chemistry, but not much else. Um, so we had history ones, English ones, music, languages, loads of stuff. Um, but only, you know, it's an Excel program. So only it could only go so far and it wasn't exactly like an attractive piece of kit. Uh, and certainly it wasn't useful for students at home uh, because we, you know, whenever I sent it home to students that had problems with Excel, problems downloading, problems near, problems didn't have to work it, blah, 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 nah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, long story short, um, I'm now in business with um, a fellow called Josh Perry uh, and Jose Diaz, who's from um, Air Curie, which is an amazing educational technology software development um uh, organization corporation company business something like that and uh, we built this thing called carousel learning which is it's basically a pimped up version of the retrieval roulette so you you upload your question banks from excel such so as questions and answers and then you use it to set quizzes for your students which they then do on their end and it takes literally three minutes to get started at the beginning and it takes about 30 seconds to set a quiz uh, the kids do it they uh, they can revise using flashcards beforehand they then do a quiz they self-assess which is really nice um, you can moderate their self-assessment you can see all of their responses you get data analytics and everything they've done you can take question banks from the community so you know if you you know if you're a history teacher and you don't have happen to have any massive excel question banks you just load up the community and you say oh mr whoever 
Oliver has made a really nice question bank. You import that. It's dead simple. We're building in amazing features like um, we're going to get the we're going to develop the automatic marking. So it does automa it does automatically mark some of the students' answers, but we're going to get it uh, basically over time. It's going to get smarter and smarter. Uh, we're going to do things like whole class feedback. We're going to do in class use, so like projecting onto the board, like the retriever roulette used to do. Uh, all sorts of amazing things. Um, and yes, hopefully that will go from strength to strength. Mm, it's very cool. And it's free, is it? It's currently free. Yeah. Um, obviously, it wasn't. It, nothing is free um, and we were very lucky that we got government grants to set up um, obviously in time we are going to have to start um, charging people as part of a revenue model um, but it will be there will, there will always be a free product there'll just also be a premium thing um, I said when Josh first called me and to talk, talk about business and stuff I said that I knew we'd never be able to keep it free because people don't work for free that's not a thing um, but the philosophy which underpins the retrieval roulette of helping teachers out had to carry through uh, and the others are completely on board with that so we're trying really hard we're, we're putting together our plans for for the for the premium model now and we're trying really really hard to get everything right in terms of both where we pitch the price and also how we go about pitching it because like the last thing i want is for a teacher who uses um, this is a really, really sad state of affairs in our in our system where teachers pay for stuff for their class out of their own pocket. Yeah. Um, so, for example, people might pay for a resource on tests. They might buy glue sticks. They might buy scissors, whatever it is. They'll buy for their own classes out of their own pocket. And I will be horrified uh, if teachers end up paying for it out of their own pocket. Um, obviously, I can't stop people doing that, but we need to make the conditions such that that rarely if ever happens um which is why we'll be trying really hard to plug school accounts and department accounts and things like that instead so yeah it's it's difficult and it's complicated and and it, and to be honest it's the only thing in the whole project that's made me feel a bit anxious um because um you know i like to you know i, I try as hard as i can to give as much as i can for free you know i publish alert you know tons of resources that are free mm. but like you know those those revision books that you spoke about just before people have got to pay for those you know they nothing it can't and not everything can come for free and i just think it's really important that we're careful not to go too far yes i agree i've been on a similar journey myself like um i don't like the idea of of taking money out of essentially the public purse and out of the school's budget for things that should be freely available but also, you know, sometimes there are things that, that like you say, it only works, it, like it's not possible for, to do it, you know, always with a government grant. And it costs a lot of money to, to, to develop stuff and to invest in it and to host it on a website and to make sure that it works. And these things cost money and schools have budgets. And if it saves them time and this saves, you know, the schools with a lot of time with, with um, you know, marking and homework, for example, then, you know, people are going to value that. And so I don't, I don't see a problem with it, but I, I, I sort of sense your unease and I share, I share that feeling um, as well. Um, so we're, we're still, we're still listing all of the things that you do here. So, so uh, on, <laughs> on top of this, you're also the founder and managing editor of CogSciSci, Sci, which is sort of like I, the, other... I, I'm not the managing editor anymore. Oh, I, really? I stepped back. I stepped back a couple of months ago because oh, I didn't have time to give to it. That's right. I saw that somebody else has taken that on, haven't they? Adam Robbins, he's doing a fine job. <clears throat> Can you explain briefly to listeners what CogSciSci Sci is? 
Yeah, so Cogsci is a grassroots collective of science teachers who are interested in injecting their teaching with um, um, evidence from the cognitive sciences. So things like cognitive load theory, retrieval practice, spacing, interleaving, desirable difficulties, all of that stuff. Um, so it's really a subject-specific community where we are trying to apply that evidence, not in a general way, but in um, kind of just really specific to the science classroom. Uh, we started as just a few teachers bantering around on Twitter. Um, and this is what, you know, three and a half years ago now, I think. And we, we actually, we did a conference, we did a conference, I say a conference. There were, I think, 16 or 17 of us um, that year. And then it grew slowly. We did an email group and people signed up. And then um, we had another conference that summer where there were about 40 of us, which was nice. And then the next summer we did one where there were over 80 of us and a very long waiting list. And then there were a bunch of regional events that were due to take place that had to be cancelled because of uh, COVID. Um, but we're now, we're now, so we now have a website. That's why I, so I set up the website, not this past summer, but the summer before. Um, and on the website, we've got blogs, we've got reading lists, we've got resources, we've got curated resources. It's not just anything goes. It's we've had a look and said, yeah, this is good. We've got free CPD modules, which if I can say so myself, are very high quality. And we've got a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and we're now, you know, there's a couple of thousand teachers on the email group. Uh, we have a lot of engagement. A lot of people are interested. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's a growing community. And it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that I wish I could dedicate more time to. Um, but don't have it. Mm, indeed. Well, you seem to be squeezing a lot out of the time that you do have. Um, you've also made lots of very helpful videos um, as uh, on chemistry. I saw the, the is it Boxers Shorts? <laughs> yes, the hilarious, Boxers the, Shorts. Hilarious title, Boxers Shorts. I really wish that that had been around when I was when I was teaching chemistry. And on behaviour, I don't know how many you've done on behaviour, but I know that there's one video that you've done that's been very widely viewed. And again, I would I would really have liked to to for that to have been around when I was when I was uh, in the classroom and it seems to me that lots of the stuff that you that you write about I mean it's obviously really helpful to to lots and lots of teachers right like that's why so many people visit your blogs and, and watch the videos and so on and find it really helpful and it seems to me that it's helpful because it focuses on like really hyper specific things about like sort of if the, if x happens then y happens and there's just one example that I'd quite like to 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 look at if you don't mind which was a blog that you wrote recently called Called front loading and it's mm. and it's a, and it's just it's such a classic thing so it starts I'll, I'll read the first bit out if I may it says yeah, uh, so here's the scene it's 302 p.m. and 8 8 SC2 have been working well throughout the double lesson the bell goes in three minutes teacher goes okay year eight well done today in a minute, we're going to pack up and stand behind our chairs, but I want you to make sure you've written down the homework from the board Dave and Charlie please stay at the end and can you all remember to put your papers in the bin close quote and then you start by saying as a set of instruction this looks pretty clean the teacher uses praise there's an economy of language they don't get too bogged down in details and yet as every teacher will know it doesn't work as soon as the teacher is a few words in the noise starts to build the students start packing away their books and pencil cases putting on their cakes the chairs start shuffling every teacher will be familiar with this scene and um and it's a really it's a really classic example of something so could you want to briefly explain what front loading is and how that how that might help in that situation Yes, so front loading is um, essentially 
something that I've come to realize, and this is both in pedagogy and in behavior management, is that the first thing that happens is the thing that people focus on. Um, so in a question, so there's a classic example, GCC question, which is, did you see ionic formula for neutralization reactions include state symbols in your answer? And I had, I taught this student who, um, he was a very high performing student. He ended up with, uh, I think 10, nine grades, um, and a string of A stars off to Cambridge and the like. And, um, he used to, he, him and his parents kept telling me that I wasn't pushing him hard enough in lessons. Uh, actually he didn't say that his parents said that. Um, and I would always say to him, I will call him Dave. I said, Dave, do you think I'm not pushing you hard enough in lessons? He'd be like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. And his mom would be like, no, we don't think he's being pushed hard enough. I said, okay, fine. And then I said, I said so the first parents team that I had with them, I said to them, well, look, I mean, we've done four tests so far and he's not scored hundred percent in any of them. So as far as I'm concerned, there's still stuff he's getting wrong. He's being pushed plenty. So he was always desperate to get full marks. And in this exam where it said derive the ionic equation for the new neutralization reaction includes state symbols in your answer two marks he got one mark the one mark he got was for deriving the neutralization reaction but the mark he didn't get was for not giving was for the state symbols he just didn't put them in now he knows what the state symbols are it's trivial for him but he didn't put them in why because there's two parts to the question as soon as you read the first part your brain starts whirring and clanking and gearing away and there's only so much room in there and it just doesn't take in the stuff after and then people are like oh he didn't read the question of course he read the question no one stops reading halfway through it's such a banal piece of advice it doesn't make any sense you didn't read the question of course i read the question it's just that by the time you got to the end of the question your brain was only focusing on the first part of the question. So it's true in academics, it's true in behavior management as well. That if I say to students, okay, the bell's gonna go soon, I'm already cueing them to be thinking about the bell and packing up. Or if I say in a minute, we're going to pack up, they're gonna start packing up. Um, so what you do instead is you front load the, what Doug Lamov calls the means of participation, the way you want your students to participate. So in that particular example, you'd say something like, nobody is going to pack up. Eyes up here, all eyes on me, thank you. And you wait. This isn't a pause that you should edit out, by the way. <laughs> I'm pausing deliberately. <laughs> and you wait and you look around and you say, well done. Thank you, Dave, for paying attention. Lovely. And then you reiterate and you say, nobody is going to pack up. First, I would like everybody to write down the homework in their planner. And then you wait. And then you say, next, Dave and Kevy, please, I'd like you to stay at the end. Thank you. Now I'd like you to pack up. So you're, you've, you've kind of flipped the instructions. You do it much more slowly. Um, so the, the point of that blog is to, is to include other strategies as well. So what I did then is I did front loading. I did means of participation. Um, and I did, um, you know, you can't see me across the video, but in class I'd be doing things like I'd be, be seen looking. I'd be narrating the positive. So I'm uh, kind of emphasizing a positive culture in my classroom. But, but more simply, when, you know, in, in the class, whenever you're asking a question and you want to say things like, um, you know, let's say you don't want a kid to call out, right? So don't ask the question and then say, don't call out, please, right? Say, without calling out, can somebody tell me the formula for hydrogen, right? So by putting that at the beginning of the question, you preempt half of the calling out. It just doesn't happen. Whereas if you say, um, okay, can someone tell me the word that, you know, can someone tell me the formula for hydrogen? Oh, without calling out, then you increase the chances of the calling out happening. And this is kind of across the board that, you know, you always want to put in your means of participation, which is how you want the students to participate. If it's their mini whiteboards, if it's by putting their hands up, or sometimes you might want them to call out. You know, if you're doing, uh, you know, you're doing choral response, right? And you're saying, what is the formula for hydrogen, right? So there's one answer, it's H2. And you want every student to say, what is the formula for hydrogen? Don't say, 
what is the formula for hydrogen? We're going to do this by choral response. Say, okay, this one's going to be by choral response. So you're all going to respond to me at once together on three. Okay, so all going to respond to me on three. What is the formula for hydrogen? All going to respond to me on three. What is the formula for hydrogen? One, two, three. Boom. And then you've you've just you've put all of the means of participation. You've you've made it so clear. You've put it at the beginning. It's front and foremost in their minds. People aren't going to get that stuff wrong. Uh, and there's a bunch of examples then in the blog. But again, the key would be that it's about making. It's about realizing that the stuff that comes first is what's going to come first in their heads and often in their mouths. Um, and to combine that then with other techniques and strategies to build like a sequence of instructions that's super clean, super clear, super sharp and minimizes the chances by which someone will get it wrong. Yes. Yeah, thank you. So you, you mentioned that other thing. There was, there was two, two recent blogs that you wrote. One of them was the front-loading one, and the other one was called Sir, Sir, I Know This. And that's what the, the thing that you sort of touched on there, which was, uh, again, something that I used to struggle with endlessly, which is that you sort of, you set out your thing, and you're like, nobody calls out, nobody calls out. But then it's something that Doug Lamov refers to as sins of enthusiasm. Is that right? Yeah. So it's like, and that's it, because it's like there's a kid at the front, and they call out the right answer, and you go, oh, I'm just going to let it slide because, you know, you're obviously, this was well-intentioned. I'm not going to punish that, right? How can I punish that? You're just, like, enthusiastic about chemistry, right? But that's, like, just the beginning of a slippery slope, isn't it? That you're, like, if you let that slide, then all of a sudden, you know, you can't sort of stem the flow that's going to inevitably follow. Um, and so lots of this very hyper-specific stuff is really useful. And there's a, that, that video that you, that you uh, where you outline this, and it's very, very helpful. Again, like, I've just, I wish that I'd seen it a number of years ago and so i'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes um so so thank you for all of the things that you do on behalf of uh, the teaching profession it's amazing and, and it's a, it's a very impressive thing that you're able to have such a wide influence and impact across the profession while teaching full-time like, i don't know many other people who've managed to do that so it's very impressive well done <laughs> thank you that's that's very kind of you look i mean you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help. And, and honestly, like I'm honored every time someone reads it. Um, and if people find my stuff helpful, then I'll keep producing it. <laughs> then the second uh, people stop reading my blog, then okay, maybe it's time to stop blogging and do something else. Yeah, well, who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Okay, exactly. so let's get to the um, to the finding out about you bit. So I'd, like, so I'd like to hear about your own experience of education. What kind of school were you at? What, was, what were you like at school? What was your experience of education more broadly? Okay, so um, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, um, uh, I'm Jewish, and that has uh, quite an important part to play in this story. Um, so we are Orthodox Jews, which is one denomination um, of Judaism. There's a few different denominations. There aren't that many of us, you know, there aren't that many Jews full stop in the UK. Uh, and then obviously an even smaller count of that are Orthodox, and then an even smaller count of that are Orthodox and religious, right? So in the same way that a lot of people refer to themselves as Catholic and never go to church or do anything, um, that kind of thing. Um, so we are religious, we are Orthodox, and I went to a, um, a Jewish primary school. Uh, so I grew up in Stanmore, which is in London, north, you know, northwest London, top of the Jubilee line. Um, and I went to a local school, primary school. Um, I was a nice, quiet, sweet kid who tried to do the right thing. I was very unremarkable uh, the whole way through primary school. Um, then in secondary school, I turned into a bit of a terror and I was absolutely dreadfully behaved. 
Um, I don't, I mean, the why is pretty obvious. Like I just wanted people to laugh and I wanted to have friends. Um, and I thought the way to do that was by mucking about. And I went to a school, it was also a Jewish school. And I went to a school where at that time, you know, things have changed since then, but at that time there was, um, it's a bit difficult to explain because it's hard to know how far to go back. So within Orthodox Judaism, there, is, there, are, there are also further denominations in the same way that there are within, I guess, Catholicism or any other uh, religious denomination. Um, and the school that I went to was ultra-Orthodox, um, or what's called Haredi. Um, and the philosophy of the, the ultra-Orthodox philosophy started a couple of hundred years ago in opposition to modernity. So in opposition to the liberalism and emancipations and Renaissance and scientific revolution that was taking place from the 16th, 17th, 18th century onwards. Um, so ultra-Orthodoxy kind of set up in opposition to that. Um, and uh, as a firm rejection of modernity. So modernity carried many philosophical challenges, things like the advent of science, evolution, et cetera, et cetera. You know, individual autonomy was a big one, of course, um, questioning the authenticity of the Hebrew Bible and its origins, that kind of stuff. Um, so it was very much, ultra-Orthodoxy was a reaction against this. Um, and, you know, ultra-Orthodoxy is still you know, very common and there's tens of thousands, probably close to a million adherents around the world, lots in Israel, lots in the States, lots in lots here as well. Mm. Um, and the school that I went to was ultra-Orthodox. So even though they offered a secular education, uh, as was their legal duty and obligation, the point of the secular education culturally was always to enable a person to get a job, right? It was there, you got a secular education so you could get a job, so you could earn a living, and so that either you could, you know, so you could uh, donate lots of money to charity and support other people to sit and learn all day. The ideal of the ultra-Orthodox is to not have a job and to not work, but to sit and learn Torah all day, um, to just study the Bible and the codes and the Talmud like we spoke about earlier. Somebody has to pay for that, so that's what the ultra-Orthodox who don't want to do that do. So you either go off and you just learn all day, uh, or you go into business, you make lots of money and you support the people who want to learn all day. So the principle is that the, the education that is on offer, the secular education that is on offer, is very much like ancillary, it's secondary, it's, it's very utilitarian. Um, and it meant that the culture of the school was kind of dodgy um, and there was poor behavior was, was quite common um, and not showing respect to teachers or to the dignity of the subject, I think was, was quite common as well. And, and I sadly, to my shame, was a part of that. Um, my family were not ultra-Orthodox and I was never ultra-Orthodox. I was what's called modern Orthodox, which is about synthesizing as opposed to rejecting modernity. It's about synthesizing modernity with orthodoxy and with traditional belief and behavior. Um, but I didn't really know <laughs> what it was all about. So, cause I was, I was in an ultra-Orthodox school. It's like, I don't know what's it like it's like it's like being a northern labor hardcore red you know red to the red to the bone and being sent to Eton it's <laughs> it's it's that kind of thing where you're like you know you're different but you're not 100% sure why um, or what it is that you believe that is different or even if those beliefs are like legitimate or where they fit in or what their history is at all um when I but when I finished school, when I finished school with, I finished school with a view to do medicine. Uh, my grandfather was a doctor. My father was a doctor. Young Adam too. He shall be a doctor. So I had a couple of places to study medicine when I finished school. I had uh, A levels in biology, chemistry, and maths. Um, and then um, I went to Israel to study. 
So it's quite common in my community to go to Israel for your gap year. Uh, and I chose to go to study to what's called a yeshiva, which is like, it's basically an academy. It's it's a site of religious learning. Um, and the one that I went to um, is considered the elite one of the modern Orthodox community. So it's like the jewel in the modern Orthodox crown. Um, most of the kids there are Israeli. There are about 550 students there. About and There's five different year groups. Um, so you do it's complicated but basically the israelis do a five-year program which incorporates army service so in israel there's there's conscription into the israeli army um but a lot of students choose to go study in a yeshiva and they do a five-year course that involves a year and a half to two years in the army and the rest of the time studying so they're there in five year kind of five year groups and then the abroad students are normally either go for one year or two years sometimes longer but mostly one year or two years uh, and I met a lot of Americans who are academically very high performing. And I met a lot of Israelis academically very high performing as well. But most importantly, I was exposed through them and through the culture and ethos of the academy that I visited, that I was that I was studying it to um, the, the idea that that learning and secular education isn't just a means to an end or something that helps you get a job, but is kind of worthy and valuable and dignified in and of itself. Um, and that was really the first time that I've been exposed to that. And as someone who had been quite kind of disparaging of my formal education and someone who, and especially of things like the humanities and the arts, um, that was quite a wake up call for me. Um, you know, I, the, 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 the example that I quote of just how useless I was is that I went to my English literature exam, my GCSE in English literature. Uh, I went thinking Duffy and Armitage was the name of the publisher of the anthology, <laughs> right? So I kid you not. Yes. Yeah? So I still got an A. Um, but like, I mean, that probably says more about the GCSE than it does about me, but like I had no, I had no respect for it. I didn't think it was worthwhile in the slightest. Um, and, and then all of a sudden I'm exposed to people who don't think like that. And the head of this yeshiva, a man called Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, who is to this day, you know, sadly he died, God, what is it? Seven or eight years ago now, maybe six years ago. Um, but he was, I mean, he's the smartest man I've ever been in a room with and also the most humble. Um, and he used to be a, a professor of English literature in the States. Um, and his he, he his his field was he, he did a lot of poetry, a lot of frost. Um, but his real academic field was um, Cambridge Neoplatonism, whatever that is, <laughs> um, and Milton. And he once he once said, and he had this low American voice. It was very hard to follow what he was saying. And he said that he once read Milton, Paradise Lost, and it was the first time that I fully understood it. And it was the 27th time that I'd read it. And I was like, <laughs> you know, this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with. But like, you know, he he took that stuff seriously. Um, and for me, that was like a big, big awakening because all of a sudden I was being exposed to like an intrinsic value and worth somewhere that I had not really considered um, worthy. Anyway, so I also decided at that time that I didn't want to do medicine. I don't think I'd ever wanted to do medicine. It would just been like assumed. And again, at the school that I was at, being a doctor was like a worthwhile career to do. Um, it was one of the only careers outside of business that was considered okay. Um, so I spoke to my parents and we came to an agreement and I decided to stay in this place for two years instead of one year. Uh, and I applied to do, I applied for eight, for university. My parents said that you can stay on condition that you have somewhere to come back to. 
uh, they wanted me to go to university. They, you know, that was really important to them and quite right. Um, they needed to know that I was coming back and had something to come back to. So I had, you know, I had A-levels in chemistry, biology and math. It doesn't really leave you with that many options. Um, I liked chemistry the most. I knew I was, you know, I was a good mathematician, but I was never a mathematician. Um, so I, and I, and my biology was the weakest of the three. Um, so I applied for, you know, I applied for a degree in chemistry. And I was very lucky that they gave me the choice, that they actually let me in. Um, to this day, I'll be grateful to... Uh, Dr. Dewey Lewis, who was the admissions tutor at UCL, who did me the courtesy of calling me to tell me why he wasn't going to give me a place. Uh, <laughs> so he, he called my, you know, he called my parents. He was like, you know, I've got this application. Like, like I had the smarts, you know, I had, you know, my A-levels were good, but I was taking a year out and I wanted to actually take two years out. I was applying in my gap year for a deferred entry place. And he called my, you know, he, we spoke on the phone. He basically said that out of his students who take a gap year, 50% don't make it the whole way through the course. And I wanted to take two gap years. <laughs> and I didn't really have much to say to that. I was like, I was like, look, I, I, you know, I appreciate you calling me. I don't really have anything to say back to that. I guess all I could say to you is that like, I'm not wasting my time. I'm not bumming around Thailand, smoking weed on the beach. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair studying for 15 or 16 hours a day straight like i'm not i'm not really? messing around here wow, yeah and and, and 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 i can bring that and i will be bringing that back and you know he hummed and he hard and he eventually gave me a place which i was really grateful to him for uh i made it back to i made it back here went to ucl um and about six months into the course i was like this is not for me i had originally signed up for a master's which is four years and i was like mate i'm barely going to manage three it was i really enjoyed the big picture stuff so like learning about quantum mechanics like that it's just incredible like the first time you learn about quantum mechanics it just it blows your mind but then when you actually start getting into the nitty-gritty of how to solve the schrodinger equation i'm like well i don't really think this is actually for me um and i was doing a lot of youth work at the time i was doing a lot of community education and adult education in my local uh, community and i decided i wanted to apply to be a teacher and when I, I I was like really nervous to break it to my parents, like my dad has basically only just recently come around to the idea that teaching is a proper career, uh, but he's, I'm not sure he's still convinced. Um, but my mum said to me, she said, I always knew you were going to be a teacher. I was just waiting for you to realize it. So I was like, okay, fine. You know, I can, I can do this. I applied for teach first and got horribly rejected, um, which is probably the, one of the, one of the great things that happened to me. Uh, cause I would have, cause I would have hated it. Um, and I then got rejected by the Institute of Education. And at that point, I was borderline giving up. I had one more place on my list, which is I'd applied for Hertfordshire, um, UH. And I said, you know what, if they don't give me a place, I'll just do something else. You know, I had a degree in chemistry and I was en route to getting a very good quality of degree. Like I had options. Um, and then UH interviewed me. They gave me a place. And I was like, OK, fine, let's go for this. And I was under the tutelage of the great Lynn Chapman, who is a legend in Hertfordshire science. Um, and I had a really great time. I absolutely loved my PGC. I loved the assignments. I loved the work. I loved being in schools. Um, I just, you know, it, it was a, it was a great year. It was hard. It was tough for sure. I think everyone finds it tough. Um, I'd be amazed if there's anyone who doesn't find their PGC tough. But but I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. I then joined, I went to my first school, which is JFS, which is a big Orthodox Jewish school in Kenton. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. 
um, historically very, very high standards, very um, high results. It's a state comp, but um, because it's, you know, the, the faith schools are all kind of partially selective in the sense that they select from their community, mm. um, which has its, you know, eccentricities and the Jewish community happens to have the eccentricity of being academic um, and the Jewish schools do have high results um, for whatever reason I've got no idea but it just you know is the way it is um, and I was there for a couple of years and I was very much um, I considered myself a social constructivist um, I believed devoutly uh, in discovery learning and inquiry learning. I believed strongly that I should not talk for too much in a lesson. I believe strongly in the power and greatness of um, group work, of transferable skills, um, of the need to get kids up and out of their seat and active learning. Um, what are the other things that I used to believe? Uh, I thought that if students misbehaved, it's because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't engaging them enough and I had to change the type of activity that I was doing, uh, that kind of thing. And that was all in my first school. And did you, do you say that you believe devoutly in these, in these approaches, these very sort of progressive sounding approaches of discovery that, you know, that knowledge that is discovered is somehow better or, or retained better than knowledge that is, that is taught. Um, is that stuff that you were taught explicitly or is this something that you picked up along the way? How, how do you think that you came to hold these beliefs? So it's, it's a good question because I wasn't, re I, I wasn't reflective about it at the time. Right. It's just the water that you swim in. It's the air that you breathe. Right. So I wasn't reflective about it at the time. And it was never presented as some people believe this. Other people believe that. And we think that that is right. It was just like something that underlay the whole thing it was just assumed. Um, so I, 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 I don't know um, if I was ever explicitly told if you tell students things, if you tell students things, they'll forget it quicker. It was just assumed. And get you know you'd get positive you'd get much more positive feedback for example on lesson observations they'd say oh you know it was really good the way you let them figure that out for themselves and actually to be fair we did have the we you know so we use like the five E model which is explore in, engage explore explain extend evaluate maybe but like the whole first phase of teaching anything was about the students just like mucking about with it with their hands and just you know that kind of stuff mm. um and like using some kind of like sticky kitschy hook to like draw them in um so it was just assumed um i don't you know i definitely believed it i didn't get it from nowhere and it was without a doubt the orthodoxy i was not distinct or different from anybody in doing it um i might have been a bit more committed to carrying it out but everyone around me was you know nobody said you know what maybe actually just just flipping tell them yeah just have them working by themselves in silent like that was never given to me as feedback um so it was just very much like what was done mm. and what year did you qualify so i started training in september 2013 so i finished then in june july 2014 and then my first job was september 2014 and and it was about 18 months into that job at jfs i started reading stuff and i particularly enjoy i read i read the tests every week Right. So I, my father-in-law is in education as well. He used to get a copy and I used to get his copy when they're done with it. Um, so for, you know, for as long as I've been training, I read the test cover to cover every single week. Um, and again, it was just the stuff that was normal in there. There was no one in there saying, you know, 
this is what explicit instruction is. This is why it's got more evidence. There was no one in there saying discovery is actually maybe not the best way for students to learn things. So, you know, again, it was just the air that you breathed. Um, but I, I read it every week, cover to cover, and I particularly enjoyed, there was this guy called Tom Bennett who wrote a column on behavior each week that I quite enjoyed. Um, and at one point he wrote an article where he said that teachers should get on Twitter. And I was like, you know, all right, let's give, give this a go. And I was a social media addict already at that point. So I was Facebooking all over the place, um, getting in arguments with people and the like. Um, and I got on this thing called Twitter and then through that, I started reading blogs and especially by Greg Ashman, David Didow, um, Daisy Christodoulou, cause she was still blogging a lot of the time. Joe Facer was blogging a lot of time. Carl Hendrick was blogging a lot of the time. A lot of the people who don't blog at all anymore. Um, and slowly, slowly, as well as, um, reading some key pieces of literature, like, uh, Rob Coe's what makes great teaching, which I think you and I have spoken about before. Um, and slowly, slowly, I started doing very much a, I don't know how it's pronounced, volt face. I don't know how it's pronounced about face. Yeah. yeah. Is that as pronounced? I have no idea. I would say vault face, but I've got, <laughs> that's a guess. No, not a clue. Anyway, that, that's what I did. Um, and I flipped 180. <clears throat> such to the extent that um, I think in my NQT year, like my performance management target was about doing more group work. And then by the time I got to my second school, which is in my third year of teaching, I was like, absolutely not a chance my students ever working in a group. It's just not on the cards. Um, so very much changed a lot then. Um, and I left that first school because there were some things that 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 weren't going so well. Um, not for me personally, just the school was in a really tough time. And I moved to a different school called JCOS, which is another Jewish school, but it's cross-denominational. So it's not an Orthodox school. It's a pluralist school. It's very hippie in terms of its like uh, philosophy. Um, and I was there for three years. Um, and I, I joined just as a rank and file straight up teacher. And then I picked up a couple of TLRs along the way. I did work with the Oxbridge kids, which was brilliant. Um, I did, I was a lead teacher and I was, um, the kind of semi second in department, um, in science, it's complicated, but that was kind of the role. And then in my third year there, I was, I was so comfortable. It was like, everything was just going great. Like I didn't have any problems with behavior management. Nobody bothered me. No one kicked up a fuss. Like I'd had some problems with some observations previously. <laughs> and, uh, so like I had this, I had this observation where, um, it was part of a, we did like an internal off steady type thing. The school was all about that kind of stuff, sadly. And uh, I was observed by someone from outside the department who, to be honest, I don't think should be observing me in a high stakes observation anyway. And she gave like this mad, mad feedback. They were still grading lessons at that point, um, which was bananas to start with. And uh, she, get, I had this mad feedback where she said things like, um, you know, she, she was full of praise the whole lesson, you know, she said, you know, the kids were answering questions, so many, you know, it was you know, really great. And, um, she said, I then looked in the books and I saw there wasn't much marking. And I was like, I was like, yes, the science department has an annex to the teaching and learning policy that says we don't do a lot of bookmarking. And she says, yes, 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 that's fine. But what that means is that I don't, you know, I couldn't see evidence of like where you'd like really been like, like hearing them, listening to them and getting a feel for what they know. And I was like, well, hang on a second. You just said to me five minutes ago as part of this feedback, that I asked a lot of questions and they were all targeted. 
right? I asked, you know, 60 to 70 questions in that, that 55 minute lesson. Uh, they're all targeted, they're sprayed around the room. I get plenty of data and I spread out over time. And she was basically like, but yeah, you know, you didn't have any of the like whole class AFL techniques, like, you know, red, yellow, green cards or thumbs up, thumbs down. And I was like, yeah, I don't because that's not the way I do AFL. Like I taught this class for six months. I know what they know and I know what they don't know. And she said, yes, but still, and gave me a three. And I was like, I was like, I wasn't particularly happy um, because, like, I hadn't I hadn't had a three since like the start of my PGCE, and I was like, you know, just your know, grades are stupid, and this is part of the reason why they're stupid is because they make people who are quite confident and comfortable in their teaching feel like crap. Yeah. And um, I was furious. I was livid. Um, and I told my head of department that um that the head teacher would have my resignation tomorrow. Right. I was just so angry. I was furious. Wow. And like there was a whole lot of stuff that built up to this as well. Like a whole lot of my I felt like I've, I was very protective of the department. I felt like a whole lot of my colleagues had been mistreated in a similar way. Like one of my colleagues had been told he'd been told that um, the level of challenge of the questions wasn't appropriate that he was using. And the teacher who had observed him, who was an English teacher, was observing an A-level biology lesson where they were just doing exam questions in preparation for their A-level exam. And he's like, who do you think you are like telling me that A-level biology exam questions aren't appropriate for an A-level biology class? And so like I was furious about that. I was livid about the whole thing. And one of the teachers who was supposed to observe me also hadn't turned up and stuff. It was just it, the whole thing was completely mad. And um, anyway, me and the heads, we had quite a punchy relationship anyway. He is a brilliant, brilliant man. He's a Church of England. He's a, he's a priest. Uh, who is the head of a Jewish school. Um, he's a remarkable fellow. And we had a fairly punchy conversation about it. Um, and he managed to convince me not to do something as ridiculous as resign, um, which obviously would have been daft and hubristic and full of ego and the like. Um, and he pointed all this out to me, which was the right thing to do. Uh, but, you know, it was I, I was having problems there. You know, I wasn't happy. And I think for me, the most important thing was that I knew I was getting better as a teacher, but not as a result of anything anyone around me had said to me. I was getting better because in a vacuum, I was getting better because of the stuff that I was reading and the stuff that I was trying out for myself. And it was slow and it was painful. And, th and there was nobody around who could, you know, I couldn't say to someone like, like, come in and tell me, you know, whether you think the explanation was clear enough and whether or not I've deployed the multimedia effect appropriately. Like it just didn't happen. You know, I didn't have someone coming into my lessons and giving me like lightning, precise feedback that moved me on. And and I felt that even though I was comfortable and I was doing well and I wasn't having any problems, I wasn't being pushed and I wasn't getting better fast enough. So I had a look around at some schools um, and some various positions and I applied to a few places um, and fortunately the only place that didn't reject me was uh, the Totteridge Academy uh, which is a United Learning School it's in Barnet so it was, I drove past it on my way to JCOS every morning for three years um, and it's the best decision I've ever made in my life um, other than you know marrying wife having children that's the best professional <laughs> decision best professional decision Good I've recovery. ever made in my life yeah um, I, I mean there's no chance she's going to listen to this I think I'm going to clear anyway <laughs> Um, but you know, <laughs> she's probably got ears everywhere, you know, um, where was I anyway? So, so I turn up at this school and like the, the level that these guys are operating. So I, I was head of department there of a department that was really struggling through nobody's fault. Basically it was, it was, it's not, they don't like calling it a turnaround school because I think that quite fairly does disservice 
to the teachers who were there before. So I, I think it's fair and reasonable um, not to call it a turnaround. But it is a school that whose progress massively accelerated within a couple of years from historically low outcomes to very good outcomes. Um, and that's really struggled sorting out the science department, struggled to recruit, lost the head of department. The year before I joined, there were there were three science teachers. One was the acting head of science. One was in her first year of Teach First, and the other only joined in Easter. So it was it was not in a good place. The, the way I like to put it is that there were science teachers, but there was no science department um, because you can't like no no one can function under those circumstances. It's just not feasible. Uh, so I joined, and we took on another Teach First. Um, I call them kids. It's a bit mean. A Teach First kid in his first year. Um, and that, that first term was was brutal. It was so hard. I like we were I, it was a new job, which is all new school is always difficult. New department is always difficult. Head of department is always step up to a different leadership position is always going to be difficult. The context of the school was more difficult. I, I was moving from a school which was like five to 10 percent pupil premium to one that's 40 to 50 percent, you know, close to 50 percent EAL, just a totally different environment. It's like different world and an SLT were pushing me really, really hard. We were also moving house at the time. We then uh, had to live with my in-laws and then had to live with my parents and then had to live with my in-laws. Then the house we were moving into was a building sign. Then it got broken into. It was all just complete, like everything that could have gone wrong in that first term went wrong. And I thought I was doing a really bad job. And my boss, um, who is, you know, the best teacher I've, you know, I've ever worked with and the best manager I've ever worked with just kept pushing me and supporting me and pushing me and supporting me. And like, I got better at every single aspect of my job, teaching, leading, curriculum, behavior, everything like more quickly than any other period. And for a teacher who was in their fifth year of teaching, who had basically spent the last five years breezing observations with that one notable exception, not having a real problem, and then just being pushed so much harder and just getting better so much more quickly was like, was like enervating and invigorating. And like the department were, you know, I couldn't see at the time. I, I find it really difficult to see what, like my, my big like leadership flaw is that I'm not good at seeing the improvements where they're happening. I'm always too fixed on what things could be like. And it means that I'm not good at seeing how far things have come. Um, which yeah. isn't, which is not good because it means that I'm not sensitive to small changes. Um, so that's, that's like a thing, you know, I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff with leadership. I think leaders are always working on things. Uh, but that's one of the things long-term that I need to, that I need to be focusing on. My boss assured me that things were getting better and we're getting better and we're getting better, but I couldn't see it. Um, and then just like, like at the end of January, we'd like turned the corner and like things were getting into a bit of a flow and it took us, you know, it took us till the end of January. This is like five or six months. And like, we just turned the corner with year 10 who were really tricky year group. Things were just starting to work out with year 11 and then boom, COVID hit us in the face. Uh, and of course, because we were a department that historically didn't have much by way of routines, habits, structure, culture, all of that, COVID hit us harder than others. So like the mass department who already had routines and culture and strategies and relationships and all of that in place um, were, you know, obviously like lockdown was hard, but the engagement from the students was better. For us, it was worse because students weren't used to working for us. Students weren't used to spending time at home working in science. They weren't used to having high expect to, to having high, ex sorry, they weren't used to high expectations being had of them in science. And it meant that 
that lockdown was really difficult. Um, and now we are where we are now. You know, the last term was also really hard. You know, the lockdown was really hard, but, you know, it is what it is. There does does that cover it? <laughs> almost, almost to the minute. Perfect. Thank you. That's an unbelievably uh, fulsome, comprehensive answer. I, I, I'm really interested, as as you know, in this idea of significant learning. This idea of learning that sort of that shaped the, the behaviour of the, the individual um, over the over the period of their life. And we've touched upon a few things there. I think it would make sense to 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 focus on, if I may, to, to suggest three three aspects of things that you sort of touched upon in that in that. Um, response um that it feels like you've had quite sort of pivotal moments within your within your journey uh one being about behavior we haven't really talked about that much yet i think the first one we'll talk about is maybe discovery learning because you, you mentioned that briefly and how you did this 180 flip and the third one is marking because you don't do any marking do you there's very little sort of what 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 most people would recognize as normal sort of the normal approach to written feedback uh, in yeah. books and that's something that i think that people would be really interested in so this first one discovery learning you said that you read this you read this piece so so co et al 2014 wrote this wrote this sort of review yeah. what makes great teaching um, was it the Sutton Trust that came yeah. out? I remember when it came out. The Elliot Major, Rob Cohn, a couple of others, yeah. Yeah, and it was this particular, so there was a, there was a section in there that was like, these are fads, right? These are things that, that have previously been thought to be a good idea that aren't. And the usual suspects were in there about yeah. learning styles. And, and I remember that praise was in there, like people that overusing praise isn't, yeah. isn't automatically a good idea. And then the other one was discovery learning. And you said that that was the first time that you had ever heard anybody say that it's maybe not the best thing for, for young people to just discover everything. Yeah, I think this this is the closest in my life I'll ever get to a single moment of significant learning. Um, I think most of the other things that I've spoken about it are, you know, I, I try, I'd struggled a bit to put it into words, but it's like just the, the, the air that you breathe and just the culture and atmosphere that you put yourself into. Um, so yeah, this, this, it was a really, it, it was an important moment for me. Um, you know, I was already starting to think in different ways cause I got hold of that report via Twitter and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it just had this like throwaway passage that said, by the way, discovery learning sucks. Um, in, it didn't say it in those words. And then from there reference the famous and classic Kirshner 2006 piece, Kirshner, Swell and Clark, why minimal instruction doesn't work. The failure of discovery, inquiry based, uh, social constructivist pedagogies, uh, that kind of thing. Um, which that article is peer reviewed. And as a scientist, peer review is important to me. Um, that article was definitely a polemic. It wasn't a piece of research. Mm. Uh, it is a polemic, um, but it references research and it references randomized control trials, which I didn't know were a thing in education. I'd read a lot of education research. I'd never read a randomized control trial. And as a scientist and someone who, who took public science really, um, like closely, it was really important to me. Um, the idea that, you know, I knew that randomized control trials with double blinds and the like were considered the gold standard in medicine. I didn't realize that they'd been done in education. And then all of a sudden I'm reading stuff that's really questioning um, like those kind of basic assumptions and then reading more about cognitive load theory, what it is, how it works and why. So it's not just saying empirically, we know from randomized control trials, it doesn't work, but also like we have a good cognitive model to explain why it doesn't work because of knowledge deficits and the working memory model. Uh, and, and then moving from there to kind of other sources of evidence, like the PISA 2015, um, longitudinal study on science, 
learning um, that ranked science inquiry learning as having a more negative correlational effect on student outcomes than not being in school, which, <laughs> which is quite like, it's got this mad table where it lists everything that has an impact on student outcomes in science. And like right down there at the bottom, there's a bar that says missed time at school. And then underneath that is inquiry learning. Uh, so of course it is correlational, it's not causational, but you know, it's always good to triangulate um, evidence and the like. But anyway, so, and then I also started realizing in my classes that actually when I was doing stuff like that, kids weren't getting it and they weren't understanding stuff and they were embedding misconceptions. They were making a lot of mistakes. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, and, 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 and it's important to note, by the way, that doesn't mean that inquiry and discovery aren't good techniques. It means they're not good techniques for novice learners. So they are, so, so to start with in the cognitive load theory literature, they distinguish quite tenuously, uh, it's not tenuous, but it's questionable, the distinction between biologically primary and secondary knowledge. So for example, children do learn stuff by discovery, like how to recognize faces, um, like my son who's just started swallowing. I had like I didn't teach him to swallow. He just kind of worked that out by himself. Um, but and and they learn how to talk, uh, even though there is guidance from teachers and people around them. Broadly, like they learn how to talk by themselves and how to listen by themselves. Mm. Um, it's not it's not the same as sitting down and learning how to balance an equation. Um, but reading and writing, no child learns by themselves. Well, you might have major outliers, but broadly you need formal instruction for reading and writing. And whether you're whole words or systematic synthetic phonics or whatever, everybody agrees there has to be instruction. No one's like, just give kids books and they'll work it out. Um, some, people, so the, some people say that, but not, there, there are not many. Yeah, th yeah. that's very far out to the edges. Um, hmm. You'll find someone who says everything. <laughs> who says, you know, there'll always be someone to say every potty idea under the sun, but broadly, like it's not mainstream in the slightest. Um, and so, so, so discovery learning is, there's this thing called the um, expertise reversal effect, yeah. which is as you become more expert in the subject, the techniques which work best for you to learn by um, are, are reversed. So the classic example is, is a worked example. So if I want to teach my students how to say balance an equation or solve weight equals mass times gravity, I, I do that via a worked example. And I do the worked example slowly, deliberately and carefully. Then we do another worked example together. Then they might do a faded example where they've got bits and pieces of a worked example. They need to fill in the rest. And then finally, when they're ready, they do independent practice. That's really good for novice learners. But if I took like a physics expert, someone who's already a boss at physics, and I wanted to teach them a new equation, the way to do that would not be by a worked example. I'd say, this is a new equation. This is what the bits mean. And they'd be fine. And they'd go off and work out the rest by themselves. And in fact, if I tried making them use a worked example, I'd actually slow them down and intellectually hinder them. And the same is true of discovery and inquiry learning that, um, you know, when you're first starting out, discovery is a very, very poor way to learn. Um, an explicit instruction being taught by a teacher is much better. Whereas as you progress further in your knowledge and expertise, um, it's, it's better for you to be moving towards, you know, figuring stuff out for yourself. Like if, if, you know, if you are a researcher in a particular area, so like, uh, you know, you do research in oracy, right? Yeah. So if someone, you know, it, it wouldn't be a good idea for you to go to Neil Mercer talking to the PGC students at the IOE giving the introductory talk about oracy. Like you're not going to learn anything like that, right? It's just, you know, you're, you're going to sit, you're going to sit there for 50 minutes thinking, well, I know all this. And even if he was teaching stuff that you knew already, right, what would take him an hour and a half with the PGC students, you could sit down with the paper and do in 10 minutes, 
right? Now, not to say you wouldn't benefit from hearing a master of their craft, et cetera, et cetera. In principle, if you talk about raw learning and raw outcomes, like it would be better for you to just sit down with the paper and read it rather than have someone standing up and giving a lecture about it with dodgy slides for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, the, the, it does flip. So it's not the case that discovery learning and inquiry learning is always bad. It's just, it's a, it's a time and a place type thing. So when students don't know a lot about subjects then discovery is a bad idea, when they do know a lot about subject, then it becomes a better idea. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's an interesting point. And we'll, I think that we'll come on to that uh, later on because um, it's something that I'm really interested. In. I'm a learning to learner, right? Like my, th sure. my whole thing is that I, I really think that the best thing that we can do is to teach kids how to teach themselves because once they leave school, regardless of what exam results they get, there's not going to be a teacher there to tell them what to do and how and to set low stakes tests and to make sure that all this stuff sort of beautifully furnishes their mind and their long term memory. And so I think that we need to somehow figure out where that where that point of balance is. And I know that so something that's interesting that came up the other day when we were talking was about how the math department at your school is uh, has got these incredible results and they do it through a like collaborative learning group work type pedagogy yeah they, they do a lot of group work it is worth noting that anytime they want to explain something they do use explicit instruction right so worked examples and the like they don't they don't do any of this i remember watching a video on teachers tv where like it was an outstanding video do you remember teachers tv mm. right a video of an outstanding yeah, teacher teaching pythagoras theorem and he had a golf ball and he had cricket bats and they were out on the field running around and stuff and they were trying to derive pythagoras theorem for themselves right without him telling them what it was and which is exactly the kind of nonsense that i used to do by the way and um and they would never do that in my math department they're like this is pythagoras's theorem this is how it's applied but then the individual work and the practice is all done collaboratively um and this is only a part of their success they have many other you know one of the, they do they do some amazing amazing things their pedagogy is very strong they have these things called chants which are like uh it's a basically a metacognitive strategy for solving any given problem so essentially they've taken every problem that a student could ever be asked at GCSE maths and turned it into a set of 50 to 60 heuristics, which are chants. So for example, um, they would say of in maths means, and the kids would go times. Well, what does that mean? That means if you've got a question that says, what is half of 360? That means half times 360, because of in maths means times, right? And they've got loads of them, but they become way more um, um, sophisticated and that's a really nice one that we use a lot in the science department actually is successful elimination so I say successful elimination the kids go back inverse operation and that's how you rearrange an equation or uh, how you do a linear rearrangement it's really clever they have ones like the box method is like four or five different levels and it's basically a decision tree um, oh so here's a good one right angle triangle and the, you go right angle triangle and the kids go Pythagoras or trig so if you see a right angle triangle, it's always going to be Pythagoras or trig, right? And then basically the next level of the chant are about them figuring out if it's Pythagoras or trig, and if it's trig, how to solve it, and if it's Pythagoras, how to solve it. It's, it's, it's by the way, it's the only time, everyone talks about metacognition these days, it's the only time I've ever actually seen it in play and being a sensible thing rather than just like woolly fluff. Um, so like these kids, like they, they really think about the strategies. So that's what, you know, one of the things they do that and, but they're, they're, they do the group work, but like the, the peer to peer accountability is so strong. So, you know, they might ask a question and, and the kids on a table will write all their answers on the mini whiteboards or whatever. And if one kid on the table gets it wrong and another kid gets it right, they'll have a massive go at the kid who got it right for not explaining to the kid who got it wrong where they're going wrong. 
Um, so they do do the peer to peer accountability. They do do the kind of social learning, but the way they do it is better. And, and is, is just, it's, it's not just better. It's orders of magnitude better than anyone elsewhere I've seen. And like, I, I don't teach like that. Uh, no, not, not necessarily just because of personal affects, but also I don't actually think I'm good enough to do that yet. And it might be that one day I'm like, Oh, you know what? I can start doing things the way that they do things. Um, but I'm not there yet. I'm definitely not there yet. Okay, let's come on to uh, behavior management because yeah. this is something that you talk about a lot. And again, it's something that you seem to have thought about a lot and something that I thought was really interesting that I read um, was that you hate it because <laughs> you, like, you, you hate sort of doing it. You hate having to deal with it. You just you yeah. don't like dislike the process of having to exert your authority on young people and so on. Um, how were you as a behavior manager? Like my first few years um, of teaching were not good behaviorally. Like yeah. it was just, I was shouting a lot. It often felt like I was shouting at my own lack of planning, which is not a very nice feeling. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, I wasn't working in a school where there was even particularly a behavior management policy. You we would often get undermined yeah. and, you know, you send a kid out and they get sent straight back into your lesson. And it was hard. Um, and I sort of had to learn it, learn my own way of figuring out, um, you know, how to get through the week without, without falling apart. Um, what sort of the journey that you've been on with regard to behavior? Uh, yeah. Um, so at, at the first school that I taught at, behavior generally was good, um, but it wasn't perfect. And definitely if you were like young or new or inexperienced or sadly to say like, if, basically there were like, there were like levels, right? Um, of things that will contribute to you having worse behavior in your classes, right? Being young is one, being inexperienced is another, being new to a school mm. is another, being junior in rank is another, sadly being female is another, having an accent is another, all of the above, right? Being a small person can make it. And again, I'm not saying that like there aren't small female teachers with accents who dominate their classes. There are, there obviously are. But like on average, these things make it harder for you. Um, and I think, I think at first I was very much like, I need to plan more engaging lessons so these students behave. Um, and then I started moving away from that when I started reading um, Andrew Old's blog. So Andrew Old is a horribly contentious fellow um, and, um, you know, has a very, you know, has a very uh, idiosyncratic online mannerism. Uh, but he, he wrote quite powerfully about behavior back in the day. And he was basically just talking about student choice. And, and he put it quite simply that like, if you say that the behavior is because of you and it's your fault, then you're robbing the child of any agency. And you're saying like, it was inevitable that they would misbehave. Um, and like they, they, they don't have like a moral, uh, yeah, agency is the right word. Moral agency is about, is you saying a person has free will and the choice to do right or wrong. And essentially, if you're saying that it's all about you and what you do, then that kind of vanishes because you're saying that the child would have inevitably 
misbehave because my lesson wasn't engaging enough. Um, and, and I think that's like, that's like a really powerful moral proposition. And I veered quite strongly over to that side. Um, and then of course, thesis, antithesis and synthesis, I had a particular class who I learned the most from again, it was in this first school, they were, they were, they were year seven, but they were babies, right? So everyone who's taught year seven knows that in every class, you'll have one or two kids, maybe who aren't quite secondary ready, bless them. And like, you know, it's part of the job and it's part of the fun and the kids who just like get up and wander around the classroom for no apparent reason, yeah. or the kids who ask you if they can turn over the page, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of student. Um, and this was a class by, you know, by laws of fixed probability, it's inevitable that you will have one class that instead of having a critical mass of students who are secondary ready, you have a critical mass of students who aren't secondary ready. And these kids, bless them, like they were lovely. They weren't badly behaved. They were just all over the place. They just like, they, they didn't, they, you know, in, they didn't know how to focus. They didn't know how to learn. They didn't understand the expectations that there were of them. Um, and they would, you know, they would just do weird stuff, like not because they were misbehaving, just because they didn't know it was the wrong thing to do. And when there were so many of them, it like became quite difficult to manage. And I got quite frustrated. And I basically like, I started just massively slowing things down for them. And I started saying things to them, like, okay, I would like everybody in this classroom to put your hands up in the air like this, and then put them flat on the table in front of you. Thank you. Now that means your hands are going to stay flat. You're not going to pick up your pens. You're not going to pick up your scissors and start cutting random stuff. You're just going to have your hands on the table and you're going to be looking and listening to me. And then basically like it worked, it really, really worked. And by like, like almost micromanaging their behaviors in like a nice way. Um, and not in a way that was like, I was saying, you know, I will give you a four hour detention <laughs> if you ask me again, if you can turn the page, that kind of thing. It was more like, you don't need to ask me if you can turn the page, just do it when you're ready. It was like preemptive and proactive rather than reactive. Yeah. And like, I wasn't making my lessons any more engaging or anything. I was just like, I was just like breaking stuff down and being really slow and being really attentive to what they were doing. Um, and behavior got a lot better. And then I was like, well, why don't I just try this with other classes? Uh, and it was hard with other classes, but like their behavior improved as well. And by like being really like careful about the way that I was saying things and the way that I was attending to them, uh, it made like quite a big difference. I then moved to my second school and it went downhill massively very fast because do you remember I said there were the six or seven things, right? One of them is moving to a new school. The first lesson in that new school, I was, <laughs> I, I, know, I don't know I said this twice, but like, I don't want you to feel like I'm some kind of like, like loose cannon, but I like, I was, I was basically ready to call my old head and ask for my <laughs> old job back. It was so bad. Like there were kids wandering around. They were like pushing each other. They weren't listening to me. They were calling out. They were being rude to each other. It was an absolute nightmare. Right. To be fair, it was a very difficult class. To this day, it's still a class that I would have struggled with. But, um, you know, it, it made me feel pretty bad about myself. Um, and then slowly, slowly, again, started, things started improving across those three years. At some point, I started reading some Doug Lamov and realizing that some of the things that I were doing were things that he spoke about in his book. But um, I didn't need to accelerate my progress in that area too much because I was okay. I then came to the new school and even though like I was still in a decent position, you know, even though I was, I was new to the school and new head of department, I was much more firm and secure in the way that I was doing things, but I was then supervising others. And I was then getting to the point where I had to give others feedback to make them improve. And essentially I had to 
distill the stuff that I was doing into a way, things that I was doing naturally without thinking about, um, I had to distill those into um, like, like a firm step or action that somebody else could understand and carry out. And it wasn't enough. It wouldn't be enough to just like, like wishy-washy, flimmy-flammy say like, you know, it's like, like when I walk around the class, like, like I try and move in a way that we're like, I'm doing, you know, like, I, I don't really know. Like, you know, I, I sort of, I, I want to try and like look at everybody, right. Is much slower and less effective than saying pastel's perch. And my trainees both know, well, they're not trainees anymore, they're both NQTs now. They know if I say pastel's perch, they know that they should have gone to a particular area in the room. They should have, which is where they can see the most number of students without any being in their periphery. And then I can say, be seen looking radar. And they'll know that what they should have done is craned their head around and moved their head and their neck so that every student in the room knows that they're watching. Every student in the room knows that they are a part of this lesson. You know, a really good example, something again that I didn't even notice until I videoed it. Um, there was a so a student who was talking very quietly no sorry what was it hang on let me think just give me a second yeah um so there were two things there was one there was a student who was talking very quietly and um i stepped towards the student because i couldn't hear them and then i essentially and then just got on with the lesson but then the video showed that like a whole bunch of other students stopped listening at that point they're just like you know, wandered off. And the reason for that was because I'd effectively zoned them out of the class. Yeah. Right. If I can't hear the kid, they can't hear the kid. And when I step closer to the kid, not only am I, you know, not only are they still not being able to hear, but I'm actively saying to them, this part of the lesson is not for you. Right. And the same happened when um, somebody misbehaved. So I would be talking to one student and then someone in the, uh, in the other corner of the room would start messing around. And I'd, I'd turn around and I'd say, you know, stop doing that. It's not okay. Uh, or whatever. I said, do it again. You get detention, something like that. Um, and then I went back to the first kid who was then talking to the person next to him. And I'm like, how did that happen? Right. And this is a very common occurrence where like you're talking to one kid about the learning. You then turn to a different kid who's misbehaving. You come back to the first kid and they're not listening to you anymore. Well, why is that? Because you've zoned them out. They're not part of the, this part of the lesson anymore. You're mm. going to talk to somebody else and you've, you've cued them to thinking this isn't part of your lesson. So instead what I did is, is um, that, so the next time that happened, I put out my hand towards the student who I had been talking to and I said, just hold tight a second. And I kept that hand there. And then I turned just my head and neck to the student who was messing around. So my body, my hand is still facing that first student. And I say, do that again, you'll have a detention. And then I turn very quickly back to the first student. And just that like physicality and that body and verbal language of saying, you are, I'm still, this conversation is just paused, right? I'm coming back to you very soon, right? Is kind of, um, that meant that he didn't turn around and start talking to the person next to him because he still felt that he was part of a lesson. Um, and this kind of all led me on to like the Douglamov umbrella technique of things like ratio, which is the way that you keep everyone in your class with you and paying attention. So ratio is about the number of students who are paying attention at any given time. Um, and the techniques you can use to make sure that number is high. So, and, and sometimes it's obvious. So, so cold call, when you ask a question, you don't say, um, Daniel, what is the formula for hydrogen? Because 
everybody else who isn't Daniel stops listening. You say, what is the word equation for hydrogen, Daniel? And that way nobody knows who's going to get picked, right? So that's a good way of building your ratio, making sure everyone's paying attention. But there's also more subtle ones. So for example, my NQT last year, um, she was brilliant. Um, she unfortunately has left the profession. I'm trying to get her back and I'll get there eventually. But you know, she was brilliant. And she was in the middle of a year 11 lesson with, with a tricky bunch. And there was a student who messed her. She was in the middle of an explanation, which goes A, B, C, D. Right. And there was a student, she had just done B and there was a student who messed around and she did a very calm, quiet interaction with this girl. She said, please just stand up and go. And the girl was like, mm, she's like, just go. And the girl got up and went. And then she carried on from C. And I said to her afterwards, I said, look, you dealt with it calmly, which is right. You dealt with it using um, an economy of language, which is right. You didn't get into a long conversation with her, which is right. What you didn't do is realize that the second that that interaction happens, everybody else in the class is paying attention to that interaction and not to you and your explanation, right? What you should have done is the student leaves and you say, right, I want everyone to pay attention back over here, please, eyes up here. I'm sorry that happened, I'm not talking about it. Back to the top and then go back A, B, C, D. If you pick up from C, which is where you left off, all of your kids have broken their attention they're thinking about something else. They're thinking about this girl who's just been kicked out. What was it that she did? Is she going to get in more trouble? And all of the stuff that they know that you don't know, like, you know, the baggage that this girl might have had brought to the lesson. They might know that this girl is on the last warning from ahead of year that you don't know. All of that stuff, right, that is now, boom, in their heads. And what's not in their head is A, B, C, and D. And that means if you carry on from C, if they can't remember or A and B have just gone from their heads, they're not going to be able to access C. They're not going to be able to access D. They're not participating in your lesson and your ratio goes down. And these words like, like ratio and cold call and pastors perch, be seen looking, 33030, um, all of the words that we use like as a matter of course are so powerful at like front loading, like we spoke about before, means of participation. They're so powerful for just like, for like guiding those micro movements that lead to big changes, both in the behavior of your class and in their academics because mm. uh, you've got more of them thinking at the same time now a lot of people criticize this stuff because it's like micromanaging it's overly controlling and all of that stuff um and 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 yeah like i guess you know may, maybe it's not for everyone maybe it's not and you know what some of the stuff that you see in the videos from the lamov schools the uncommon uh, what they called the uncommon yeah, schools, uncommon schools. In, yes look some of it's weird you know slant i find slant a bit strange right slant is the sit up straight and listen and stuff and the track so t yeah, is the track, track. The teacher, track. Yeah. <clears throat> you know what i do find it a bit weird um but i do ask students to look at me because that's the way that i know well, I've got a better chance of knowing that they're paying attention. Obviously, obviously, like if I've got autism, you know, kids, kids with autism, autistic kids, like I'm not going to make them make eye contact, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, fine. Right. There are obviously exceptions. And that's another one of the criticisms. People are like, how dare you do this to autistic kids? I'm, like, well, I'm not a monster. Right. Um, I personally find that doing it this way, even though I am like, like, I guess the, the way that I think about it is, um, I have really bad eczema on my hands, right? It's a curse, right? In the winter, every year, my eczema flares up and it gets really bad. I, can, I, I can't, you know, some days I can't, I can't close my hands, right? And uh, I know that I need, to, I need to use the cream that the doctor's prescribed me. That's before my bed. I put it on every evening, but I also need to moisturize throughout the day using my epiderm cream. Now, if I have one tub of epiderm and it's downstairs and I'm working in the loft and I realize oh, I need to moisturize my hands, well, I'm not going to go, am I? Right? Or I'm going to go less frequently. 
So what do I do? I get another tub of Epiderm and I put it on my desk at work. I buy another one from Amazon. I put it on the desk right next to me. And it like it's much easier. I just like reach over and I just do the pump and I put the cream on and I'm done. And so I have like four or five tubs of Epiderm that I have in various places. I have one at my desk in my uh, at work. I have one at my desk at home, one next to my bed and one downstairs. And it just means that actually I end up moisturizing more. Right. It's like it's I think I think behavioral scientists call it like a nudge. It's a nudge theory. Right. It's just it's, it's like a small change. Right. That you're not like robbing anyone of their free will. You're not taking their autonomy away. You're not being like like no, nobody would say to me, oh, the way you've done. It, you know, why can't you just want to moisturize more? Right. If you want to moisturize enough, then you'll go downstairs and you'll do the moisturizing. You need to get students to just want to behave more and then they will just choose to behave. And I'm like, look, you know what? Maybe maybe for some kids it works. Maybe for some teachers it works. I don't know. But like if I can put the tub of moisturizer there, then then why would I not just do that? Like if it's just going to make things a lot easier for everybody. And that, uh, there's this concept in Greek virtue um, ethics called acrasia. Do you know acrasia? No. So acrasia is reformulated by Jesus as uh, the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right. Acrasia is basically where like you really want to do the right thing. You just don't. You just end up not doing it. There are, I would, I would argue, right, that in most schools, most of the time, like 99% of the kids, they want to do the right thing. And when you have that chat with them afterwards, you're like, like, what was the right thing to do? And they're like, not call out. You say, what did you do? Call out. So was that the right thing to do? No. Like, why did you do it? I don't know. So I just did it. Like, do you want to do it? Like, if you like, like what's going on? He's like, so I'm sorry. I didn't want to do it. Like, I don't know. Right? Like, <laughs> like the, these kids are, you know, they're lovely and they're sweet and they're brilliant and all of that. And they want to do the right thing, but the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and like mistakes end up happening and they do things that are wrong. I would much, much, much prefer to have a situation where I'm telling students to look at me then have to give them a detention. And, and, and if, that's, if, if that's the choice, like obviously I'm going to take it because I don't think the other approaches of like being their mate or doing like engaging lessons or like, like you know, someone wrote in, um, in the Charter College of Teaching's guide for like new teachers, it was published a couple of years ago. Someone said, you know, someone who is, a, who is considered an authority in behavior management said that it's a good idea for new teachers, PGC and NQTs, to like go out into the playground at lunch and like talk to the kids and get to know them more. And like that way, like the behavior will be better. And I'm like, nonsense. I'm like, I'm like, like where, like, I have very good relationships with some of my toughest students who cause me the most grief right? Very good relationships. And I have a conversation with them afterwards. And I'll be like, I'm sorry, like, I know, you know, it was wrong thing to do. You know, I, I deserve the detention or whatever, right? Like, the relationship is there. It's always there. And to be sure, there are there are a couple of students who I who I struggle with my relationship with them, and they might also misbehave fine. My point is that like, like, it just doesn't necessarily mean there'll be any difference. Like, why is it that, you know, students behave perfectly in the exam hall, right? They got their GCSE exams, right? You know, you obviously you'll have some very small exceptions, but it's the least engaging, most boring, most difficult, most arduous, most anxiety inducing, longest, right? A lot of they have to sit there for an hour and a half, right? Not period of their lives, right? There's no relationship with the paper. There's no relationship with the invigilator who's paid to just like wander up and down the, col the columns. And yet the behavior is great, right? Relationships are like like so important. There's so many teachers get into the job because of relationship. Like if I couldn't build a relationship with my kids, like I wouldn't be able to teach, sure. But like it also has very, very little correlation with what actually happens in terms of behavior management in the classroom. However, the stuff that I do 
the micro movements and the way that I phrase my instructions and my precision of language and the place where I stand and the things that I do with my body language do make a big difference. So I don't think if you asked my students, you said, do you feel like Mr. Boxer is too controlling? I don't think they'd say that. I think if you said to them, what's behavior like in Mr. Boxer's lesson, they'd say it's very good. And they said, are you happy with that or sad with that? And they'd say, I think I'm pretty happy with that because I don't mess around and I mess around in other classes, but I don't mess around with him. It's not because I'm scary. I'm not a scary guy. I, I really not. I, I'm not one of those naturals, you know, the big beast who just like wanders into a class and boom, everyone's quiet. Like they've got that like natural air about them. I don't mm. have that. I've worked really, really hard and I've had to work really hard to get to the place where, where I am because because I hate dealing with it and, it and it stresses me out and it makes me upset and I carry it home with me. You know, there have been times where like I've had to punish a kid because, you know, you know, when like really bad, like I can't go into details, but you know, when like really bad stuff happens in school and you have to follow through on it and you just really, really don't want to, you really want to give the kid another chance. But, you know, there are times where sadly you just can't, you know, things like that. You, you really don't want to have to give them that attention. You don't want to have to make that phone call to the mum. You know, I've, I've had my parents in tears down the phone to me. Like nobody wants that, right? If I can avoid that just by telling a student to look at me, then you're damn right I'm going to do that. And if someone comes into my class and tells me I'm being too authoritarian and there's a panopticon going on here, okay, c'est la vie. Look, you take over, you show me how it's done. But for the minute, I'm more than happy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was a bit long. That was a bit of a rant. No, it's good. I know that I know that behavior management is uh, something that's important in your work and and with me as well, you know. And it's funny that, you know, we were talking about progressive and traditionalism earlier and often, like, um, people sort of, I mean, when I think of, of Trad and Prog, I think of it in terms of classroom practices and pedagogy, um, and, but people often sort of lump in behaviour management with it as though, like, you know, like a, a progressive educationalist has to just believe in sort of, you know, quite permissive uh, approaches to just letting kids do what they want to do and, um, and having restorative approaches to, you know, um, instead of detentions and so on. And uh, I don't have a problem with with having really firm boundaries and with learning these micro tools. And obviously, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter what I think, you know, like you were just mentioning Doug Lamov and, and Teach Like a Champion and, the, you know, the popularity uh, of the, of those books. I know he's writing version three at the moment um, is insane. And obviously, you know, there's a huge hunger and thirst or whatever it is out in the teaching profession for information about how can I do this better the the nitty-gritty the day-to-day -day running of a, of a of a classroom um and it's a massive problem you know as I said as somebody who's who struggled for many years with with behavior management in a school that was not good at, at organizing it um it's no fun man and you know we know that there's huge ret ret retention mm. problems in schools and workload and behavior are the two big things aren't they um which brings us neatly to workload um let's just touch on this briefly and then we'll talk about some positives some challenges some uh fixes to those challenges and then we'll get back to our carpaccio of beef so um yeah i know that you've done a lot of work on uh, I, saw, I saw there was something that you mentioned earlier that there was an annex to your policy and i remember that you'd written something was it a report for governors a while ago yeah, that yeah. was about like uh, re reviewing the literature and you're like i don't think that there's much of a of a case for written uh, feedback and as i understand it you don't really do any or is it or very much written feedback yep. in your classes and or in your department and i think that people will be very pleased to uh, and intrigued to hear more about this yeah so um that document was called markageddon um that was it 
Yeah, I, I don't know how I came up with the name, but we'll, we'll run with it. Um, it's definitely catchy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think like most teachers, I've always hated marking. Um, and, you know, it's really important to point out that I'm a science teacher. And most of what I say is about science. Um, and I don't, you know, there's not much evidence for any subject. But like in terms of my own practice, I can't talk outside of science. Um, and I just always felt like it was a waste of time. Like it was done just because it had to be done, but not mm. because it was actually doing anything to the students in terms of their learning. And like, I used to fall asleep marking stuff and my attention would wander. And it was, it's a kind of job that, you know, the first thing might take you two minutes to mark. And then the second one might also be two minutes. But by the time you get to the 10th, it's taking you four minutes and you're going to have a coffee break halfway through. It's just like, it's a nightmare task. It's awful, awful, awful. And I always hated it. And I, I was fairly confident it wasn't doing much. And then the government said that we're going to have this big like review into marking. And then the uh, Education Endowment Foundation published a big thing about marking, saying there's no evidence that it works. And also like from a, I think I read in one of David Didow's blogs that even like from a logical perspective, like if you, let's say a kid writes an answer to a given question and you give them some written feedback and then they improve their answer. All they've proved, all they've shown is that given is that given a specific piece of feedback on a specific piece of work, they've made a specific improvement. Like you've not necessarily moved the kid forward, right? You've moved the kid forward given a specific comment. So, you know, even logically, I didn't really see the point. Um, I just I just, I just hated doing it so much. It's like, you know, I hate I hate doing behavior management, but like at least I'm like I see the value in it. Right. <laughs> so so I just I never saw the value in marking and I'd be constantly ranting and raving about it to anybody who would listen, including my vast superiors. And at one point the head who I mentioned before, um, he just he was like, why don't you just come present to governors? Because he, you know, he was the head of a very middle class school um and children and their parents expect a certain standard of quality uh, and they expect a certain service because uh, that's what they think that, that's what they think they're getting even though they're not well they are paying technically but it's <laughs> whatever that's the the, uh, the vagaries of middle class parenting we can do another time um, but anyway they expected marking so they said come along to the governors and you know have a go so I, I went away and I wrote up this thing and I presented I don't think anything changed as a result of it but it got thousands of hits and people were very very interested um, and then when I joined my new school, we believe strongly in um, we believe in principles of self-determination theory, uh, which is the uh, self-determination of a person is essentially their kind of their self-affect, the way they view themselves. Um, and it's originally Ryan and Desi. There's a couple of papers around 2000, 2001 that you'll yeah. probably be familiar with. Uh, and they they established so it's popularized by Daniel Pink in his book Drive, um, which is actually bought by everyone at my school for everyone at my school by the head. So before you start, he buys you a copy of Drive and asks you to read it. Daniel Pink, great ideas about psychology, terrible ideas about education, um, but that's for another time as well. Um, and he, sorry, I'm actually just gonna close that. Sorry, stop it pinging again. Um, Anyway, so so the three pillars are um, relationships or purpose, um, autonomy and mastery. So the more like you feel like related to people or you understand the purpose of your work, the more motivated you're going to feel towards it. Um, mastery is about the better you feel about how things are going, the more motivated you are. If things are going badly, then obviously you don't feel particularly motivated. Um, it's the it's what I call the, the parallel park which is where like when you first learn to drive, you hate parallel parking and everybody does. And then once you like get good at parallel parking, 
you're like you know like challenge accepted and like you go for like a really difficult parallel park i don't know if it's maybe it's a male thing i don't know you get out of the car you're like yeah smashed it and then uh, and then like that's mastery that's what mastery is it's because you're good at something you like enjoy doing it and you you relish the challenge and then the third pillar is autonomy which is about people's ability to make decisions about their own work and about their own life and we treasure all three at school um and we you know we treasure intrinsic motivation so you spoke about praise a bit earlier from the co-report we don't do reward points um, we don't have reward points we don't do raffles we don't we issue completely if then rewards so i would never be allowed if i if if my head walked in to my classroom and i said okay if you do this really well then i will give you x y or z and it might be a like a, a chocolate or a reward point or whatever um he'd go mad at me um, because that is exactly what we don't do um we give out recognitions which are um, now that rewards so now that a person has done something we will recognize it yeah um and so they get the kids get surprise um rewards so like we might take 50 kids in year eight who their teachers have t said always do smashing homework and just give them a pizza party um because you know they won't know it's coming but it's and now so it's a now that reward anyway um, so, so one of the things that we treasure as well is of course this autonomy and people being able to make as many decisions as they can about their life. So like my boss would, would be more than happy if we could like choose our own hours and be flexible, but obviously that's not on the cards. So, so we do what we can. So one example of where we apply autonomy is departmental teaching and learning. Um, so every department is entitled to their own teaching and learning policy. We have some whole school prerequisites like using cold call and stretch it, right is right and knocked out, which are Douglas Moff strategies, things like explicitly modeling stuff is a whole school uh you know prerequisite but again like the way you model would be would be down to your teaching and learning your departmental teaching and learning policy um and i said to my boss that um i didn't want to mark anything ever and he was like okay uh here's the pushback and he said right how are you going to know what students know and what they don't how are you going to um, give them feedback? And those are the two questions I had to answer. Now, I think personally that marking is a terrible answer to those two questions, but those theoretically, that's what marking is trying to do. It's trying to get you to see the student's work and it's trying to get you to give them feedback. So I said, look, what we'll do is we do, uh, we do, we do circulating in class, which is where you go around and like purposefully, you don't just like wander around, but you like purposefully look at students' work. You do sampling when you do your questioning, you use mini whiteboards extensively. And all of that is a way of getting information about what students know. We do regular mini quizzes, which are spaced. So they're based on material they learned a week ago, two weeks ago, six months ago, two years ago. Um, we do fortnightly short assessments um and we do and we do the carousel stuff so we're now checking loads of their work that they're doing online so that's how we see the work that they're doing and we give them feedback the whole time but we do that feedback in a way that benefits more students than just one so if there's if there's an area that like one student's made and it's very niche then yeah i'll give the feedback to that student by themselves verbally not not in writing because it takes longer um and there's no point to it um, but if there's a mistake that like a few kids are having, so, so this is a, again, like a classic rookie error. 
um, where, you know, you do your explain web and then the kids do some work and you notice that there's a mistake that a kid makes and, and you tell the kid where they went wrong and how to rectify. You then move on to the next kid. They've made a very similar mistake and you tell them where they went wrong. And then you've got hands going up left, right, and center. And you go to each one and you're like, okay, telling them what went wrong, what, what, what was wrong, what was wrong, what was wrong. So that's like a novice error. And then like a better teacher would maybe like notice that this is a class error and would like pull the class back and would say, oh, if you've got question two right, keep going. But for everybody else, I want you to listen to me. Um, that would, I think that's also an error. It's just less of a rookie error. A more experienced teacher would bring the whole class back and explain some and, and say, right, a lot of people misunderstood that. So we're going to go over that together as a class and would then let the students go do some more work. Um, again, I still think that's an error because an even better teacher would pull the whole class back and would explain it again and would then do a check for understanding via a mini whiteboard or via a series of two or three questions before letting them go back to the first question that they all got wrong. So I'm giving tons of feedback, right? Loads mm, of it. Yeah. Kids are, kids are getting feedback the whole time in my classes. I, I like, I have an open door policy, you know, not at the moment because of COVID, but in general, I have an open door policy. Anyone from anywhere is more than welcome to send me an email and spend the day sat in the back of my classroom. And if you walk out, you know, there are plenty of things that I can improve about my practice for sure. But if you go out of my classroom and you say that the volume of feedback wasn't sufficient and that marking would provide the students with more feedback, then I will eat my hat if you're correct. But you won't be correct. So I will not eat my hat. <laughs> yeah. Um... I mean, I'm persuaded, and it's something that I really welcome that's happening more widely, not widely enough yet, I don't think, that people are starting to engage more with verbal feedback in lessons and less written feedback that often does feel, I mean, the, the my goodness, the verbal feedback stamp, you know, there was a, a teacher tap, yeah. there was a teacher tap question recently that asked, you know, to what extent, yeah. you know, are you, are you, and it was 45% of teachers are still, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is still a thing. And it's clear, there's never been the clear evidence of that, that marking is about covering your ass. It's about accountability yeah. and not about doing what's right by the kids. Because how, how has a kid ever benefited from a verbal feedback stamp? <laughs> like, it's just outrageous. Oh, child, what was that verbal feedback? Oh, I don't know. What, do, you know what, do you know what VFG stands for? No idea. <laughs> Who does it help? You know, look, things, things are you know, slowly shifting. And in the government's 2019 workload survey, it showed that the hours teachers are working has dropped a bit. Uh, and they're, you know, so, so, yeah. so things are slowly turning around and there are more teachers who have a bit more nous about them now, but it is still a very, very big problem. I think also it's, it's not just about covering, um, but it's also a way of senior leadership who don't understand the content of a lesson it's very easy for them to say, oh, well, you know, you've done your marking, so all's good here. You know, I'll, I'll never forget being observed by, um, I was observed by the head of English while I was teaching my A-level chemists. And she like leafed through their folders and she like said to me after, she was like, uh, like I did not understand anything that was going on in the lesson in the slightest, but like their folders look neat. And I'm like, well, that, you know, that <laughs> like whether, you know, whether or not their folders are neat is, of course, gives you some information about the individual students, perhaps, maybe it might be relevant to some things. I don't know. I don't personally care all that much. But like the, the actual principle of you sitting in my classroom of A-level chemists and expecting to be able to give me like solid workable feedback. Well, obviously, if you can see marking or you can't see marking, then it means you don't have to worry about what's actually happening in the lesson. You don't have to be able to understand the nucleophilic substitution mechanism because you can just talk about the marking. Yeah. So I think I think there was a lot of that involved as well. It's just uh, 
it's a terrible practice. It needs to die a death and be burned on the flames of eternity. I mean, you know, Offset have been pretty clear that they don't give a fig about it. Um, so hope, hopefully things will change. But, you know, it's institutional and, and institutions change slowly. They do. And and I think that, you know, I mean, my wife um, is a primary school teacher and she marks everything that the kids do. And yeah, always, it's worse than primary. And always has done. But for her, she really wouldn't ever stop doing it she doesn't she now works in a school that's very laissez-faire with regards to policies yeah. but she does it because she really thinks that it, that it makes a difference because she knows exactly what every kid has done and what they've made a mistake on and, and it informs her teaching the next day and you know i think that if it does work for you then it's fine you know and i don't think that it, that it's necessarily you know i don't think anything is ever a universal bad i love this emphasis on self-determination theory and this again comes back to a sort of learning to learn idea that i just love to, for the system to become a lot more flexible and dynamic and responsive to 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 sort of individual drives and needs and obviously that's not easy because like you say there are some things that you know we're, we're working within big inflexible institutions and there's only a certain amount of give that can be given but i do feel like there, there's more give that could be given and maybe we'll come on to that shortly yeah so 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 just just quickly to pick up one thing like that part of the reason why i prefaced with you know, I'm a secondary science teacher is because of people like your wife, you know, I'm not going to tell her that she's, you know, she's not doing the right thing. If someone in my department came to me and said, Adam, you know, I know it says in the policy that we don't do any marking, but I like taking all the kids books home. I like marking them all. I like doing it. And I think it gives me information about what to do the next day. I wouldn't tell them to not do it, but I would say, okay, talk me exactly through the process taught me exactly through what information you're getting and exactly what actions you're taking afterwards. And I suspect that they would say that, you know, I like it because it's my way of showing the students that I care about them. It's my way of getting an insight into what they're thinking about, what their, you know, what their, what their knowledge of science is. And I'm able to pick up on misconceptions and build them into my planning. Next lesson. I said, okay, let's slow it down. You've got year eight science two tomorrow. There's 30 kids in the class, okay? Why not just take seven books? Take seven books home with you. Read those seven books. Don't put any pen in those books. Tell the students when you take them in, you say, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I would love to take more of your books the whole time, but I can't because I'm too busy. I'll take you seven this week. I'll take another seven next week because I love seeing your work. I'm really grateful that you give me the chance to see such beautiful work. And I'll take another seven the week after, et cetera, et cetera. And then you take, you take them in, you look at the work, you don't need to put any pen in, right? You don't need to write anything in the individual books, just on a separate sheet of paper, jot down some common errors. And I guarantee you that if there's something in one of those seven books, it's going to have appeared somewhere else in someone else's book. Then you bring back the class the next day and say, I'm so grateful to Davey, to Kevy, to whoever for giving me their books. They're so lovely. They're such good work. I can tell you guys really understanding stuff. You're making amazing progress. Now, there is something that I wanted to pick up on. One student wrote this. Can you all look at what's written on the board, please? Hmm. There's something that's wrong about that. I'd like you to think about what's wrong with that. And then you do think per share or you ask a particular student or whatever, and then you do a follow-up practice. And then like you've saved your evening, right? Cause you've cut down your marking stack, not only from 30 books to seven books, but you've also managed to cut out all the laborious actually writing in their book, but you've achieved exactly the same thing, right? So I don't know about primary. I don't know anything about primary because you have the same students all day. It might be different, whatever. But in my context, that is 100% what I would say to one of my colleagues and and I'd be surprised if they said to me you know what I still want to just do all 30 books every time yeah yeah 
absolutely and and we, and we you know we're taking baby steps in the right direction here as well there was a, a lovely piece of research that was done by by my colleague uh, mark quinn at ucl in conjunction with ross mcgill uh, where they looked at uh, it was quite a small number of, of teachers in about sort of i think there was 14 or 15 people on this program and they did verbal feedback for a year and they evaluated the impact of it and the impact was no detrimental impact in terms of student progress and the teachers clawed back like hours and hours of time a week which they then reinvested into into planning really good lessons yeah uh, it's not like they're just leaving at 3 30 and going home right so um long may that continue that trend um okay we're gonna we're gonna turn the rethinking ed bit into a quick fire round i think because i've got one eye on the clock we've just ticked over two, two hours so I'll go quick so um we're gonna go with one thing that you think is really good a positive something that you see that's happening out in the in the system more widely and this could be at the level of policy at the level of schools could be one thing that you saw a teacher do in your department something that you think is really good that you'd like to see more of um yeah i'll just ask that for now and then we'll do the other ones next yeah i, th I mean i mean i know it sounds like biased and pretentious but i think the growth in in traditional teaching is a good thing um and i think the the increasing both acceptability and promotion so remember for, for look I, there are people who deny this but for a long time the stuff that i do in the classroom was verboten and if i you know if i did the, the my normal lesson if i did my normal lesson 15 years ago i'd be getting an unsatisfactory I can't remember how they did the gradings 15 years ago, but you get the idea. Yeah. So there was a long time that that stuff was verboten and it just, and not even it was verboten. It just wasn't a thing. Like it just, it just didn't happen. Um, and everybody had their like box of tricks that they would drag out whenever Ofsted came around or there was an SLT learning walk or whatever. And, and I'm really glad that, that more and more so that on two levels, cause I think, I think the first thing is that I think it's a good thing that, um, we don't have, blanket verboten things you know in the same way that my department my mass department managed to get group work and pull it off you know i don't think you know so when gavin williamson stands up and says you know students should be facing the front right in every class anyway yeah right well they do in mine and i do think on average it's better for behavior for students to be facing the front but like my mass department has the seventh highest progress eight in the country and their students, and, and they're working in a school with high pupil premium and high EAL, and all of their desks are in pods. Like, who do you think you are that telling them to yeah, make them exactly. straight? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, now don't get me wrong, I'm not one of the no best way crews, right? I'm not saying that that means there's no best way and every teacher can just do whatever they like, right? Those mass teachers are at the top of their game and they're working as a team, building a collective culture and all of that. On average, I do still think that desks are better facing the front, yeah, that kind of thing. But there does need to be some ability for people to have a professional conversation. And like that one about marking, I don't think that marking in general is a good idea. But if someone convinces me, if a member of my team says, you know what, I, I, I don't agree with you and I do want to spend the time doing it. But just so that you know, I'll get everything else that you want me to do done first and then I'll do the marking on top of that. Like I'm not going to turn around and say no right like it's his choice or her choice they're an adult like they can make that decision about their own life and also as a professional if they say yeah that's what it is okay you know what there has to be a point at which in the same way that my boss said to me when i said i don't want marking he said fine you've got autonomy i have to lend people a certain amount of autonomy as well and the ability to to make sensible decisions about what happens in your classroom based on evidence i think is a good thing 
and the fact that Offset don't look at teaching style anymore and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's a good thing. And obviously, of course, I do happen to think that the, the growing trend and fashion towards explicit instruction is a good thing. I think teachers who care more about um, explicit instruction, the quality of their explanation, the quality of student independent practice, retrieval practice over time, I think all of that will or should be good things um, in terms of educational outcomes. So I think that, that, you know, that would probably be my good thing. Yeah, thank you. So the, the, you mentioned a few things there, but it was broadly that things are moving in a traditionalist direction and also twinned with sort of greater autonomy um, at school level and and within a system level, you think that's, um, that, you know, teachers seem to be growing into their boots a little bit and sort of taking uh, taking less directions down from the DfE. Um, and baby to the, steps. Yeah, indeed, baby steps. Right. Um, challenges. What do you think are the, the biggest challenges or one biggest one big challenge that you see that you think, oh, I'd really like to see that fixed? I mean, if, if you know, if we're living in cloud cuckoo land, then behavior would be the one to fix 100 percent. But but it's but that's a society problem. Right. You know, the reason why it's, con you know, it's considered normal for students to misbehave in classes is completely mad. You know, like if you go to Eton, right, the kids aren't misbehaving there, right? There are no behavior management strategies on show, right? Does Harrow School have a behavior policy? I don't know. You know, Haberdasher's boys down the road from me. It's a boys' school. What's behavior like there? Perfect. What, because the teachers are better at behavior management? No, not at all. So, like, culturally, it's just become a thing that students misbehave. Like, there are countries where students do not misbehave in classrooms. You know, there are schools where students do not misbehave and not because of anything that the teachers or the school policy per se is doing so i think you know if, if in clown cuckoo land if we could fix that then then our outcomes would go through the roof because this 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 country has some brilliant teachers and they're not free to teach okay that's interesting so you're so you're not saying that you wish that behavior management was better at a system level you just say i wish that there was no need for behavior management uh, my my truest deepest wish is that there were no need for behavior management. Yeah. Now, because I'm a pragmatist and I live, live in the world as it is and not as it should be, you know, obviously I prefer it if, you know, you, you know that video that I did on behavior management, what, it was 20 minutes, right? Why is it that people are going through an entire PGC and then not being taught those strategies, right? And there are some, there are some that there are, but like that video would not have tens of thousands of hits if people knew all this stuff. Right. It wouldn't have tens of thousands of hits if people weren't struggling with behavior. So, yes, obviously, like I do this stuff, I write these blogs, I do these videos because I want people to be able to feel more comfortable in the classroom and get better outcomes for their students and not go home with the debilitating anxiety that comes with the lesson ruined. I want that. Sure. But I don't think we should want it. I think the fact that the teaching standard seven is about managing student behavior sets low expectations. Right. Teaching standard one is about setting high expectations. Teaching standard seven, you've got to manage behavior. What that means is that you're expecting students to misbehave. Right. <laughs> How is that a high expectation? And, and yet you, you, you live in the world as it is, not as it should be. So there is without a doubt tension there. But if we could, you know, to, to, to work and teach in a society where students just didn't misbehave would be a beautiful thing.
Yeah. Okay. So, so going back to the realist thing, and we move on to the solution part. What do you think in this messy reality in which we unfortunately live? Um, what is the closest thing to a fix that you see at a system level for behaviour? Oh, I don't. I don't think there is a fix at a system level. Um, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think. I think. If you, if you you know if you take the schools that do a really good job on behavior right so um bedford free right so without talking about let's say we're, we're going to completely ignore michaela we're going to completely ignore mossbourne right bedford free right bedford free school beautiful behavior they don't have a binary behavior policy dixon's trinity i can't remember exactly what their policy is but they've got lovely behavior and there's no student there feeling like oppressed. I'm not saying that they are or those other schools I mentioned, but there's no doubt that the students there don't feel oppressed or micromanaged or unfairly treated in any way. So I think what you have to do is think about how that is replicated and scaled up. At a policy level, um, it's, it's kind of complicated. I think some people would say, you know, some really died in the wall traditionalists would say things like, it's not easy enough to exclude students, right? Uh, and, and I think probably for, for some kids, it's not, you know, I, I, I had to teach two kids who had been caught on site trying to sell drugs because they'd won an appeal. Right. I mean, that's crazy, right? That's, it's just, you know, to me, that is completely mad, you know, or, or colleagues who work in schools where a kid's walked in with a knife one day and they've been back in school the next week. Like, it's just, you know, it's just mad. Right. I, I don't, you know, I don't think, I think that's gone too far. Yeah. The permanent exclusion has to, has to, has to be the last, last, last resort. It's got to be the point at which you've tried everything else and it doesn't work, but it has to be a possibility. So I think some would say that that's, you know, that's got to be a part of it. But like, do I think that that's what's the, 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 the rot of society that's causing this to be an acceptable thing? No, I don't. I think there's just like a cultural attitude that like, this is just what happens in schools. It, is that for me to like, that's not my problem. I'm, I'm not society. I'm a teacher. So yeah, I think as a, a policy level, we can scale stuff up from some of the schools that do things effectively. And you, but you've got to find systems that would work in an average school. So like Michaela is clearly not an average school. It's run by a head teacher who is clearly not an average head teacher. And she's got a staff who are committed ideologues, right? Most schools are not like that. So if you said to most schools, just copy what Michaela does, right? They wouldn't be able to do it. So you need to find something that would work in the average school. Um, I don't know exactly what that is. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's difficult. Uh, and, you know, I, I hate to sound pessimistic about it, but I think at the moment the only way to improve things is just slowly, trudgingly, individual teachers, you know, getting it right in the classroom before it turns into an argument um and and yeah like even policies like you can take a good policy put it in an average school and it won't get put put in place well you could take a bad policy and put it in an above average school and and it will be okay you know i think oh, my the behavior policy at my school for example i think if that were replicated at my last school behavior would be much worse in my last school than it is in my current school because you know so it's i think our policy is a bit shaky it's a bit flimsy but because of the quality of our slt and you know i guess the commitment of the staff it kind of works and it's still not perfect but it's better 
so it's like it's crazy intractable and then yeah you have you do unfortunately you do have some people who do strongly just disagree who disagree with a lot of the stuff that i've said who disagree with a lot of the measures that i've said there are people who oppose all forms of consequences there are people who oppose even light forms of consequences there are people who don't have a problem with light ones but have a problem with slightly heavier ones there are people who think that the whole thing should be done by restorative justice the whole thing should be governed by relationship and like these people are, these people in this occasion right are not on the sidelines Right. Ban the booths was a fringe event at NEU. And nobody was like, this is, you know, this is not this is not a good idea. Right. Ban the booths. No more exclusions. You know, the, the people who genuinely have a problem with sanctions and consequences and anything of the sort uh, and the kind of um, the, the ease with which people point to trauma or to adverse childhood experience or to SEND um, and, and will fight every available, um, you know, like every slight twist and turn. They'll say, you know, it's your fault as a teacher. You did wrong. You know, the, the, the student's not the one who's the problem. All of that, that is, you know, that that's still, I don't think it's as mainstream as it used to be, but it's still quite a noisy voice uh, and, 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 and yeah, like it does make things difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's certainly an incredibly emotive issue, right? Like for temp for like temperatures run high, highest when it comes to behavior more so than anything else. And I think even more so in the States than over here, from what I can tell. Um, and I think that it's quite refreshing to hear you say, I that actually you don't have an easy answer to that question that it's that, you know, when you're talking about a system level, you know, partly you were talking about like change management there. And I think that that's often the thing that something that works in one context won't work in another context. And it's not because of the policy, it's because of the buy-in of the staff and the way in which it was implemented and sort of cultural norms. And it's like, it's messy, but I do think that there's a lot that we can do. My sort of latest obsession is implementation science yeah, um, and having something that's essentially a sort of tight but loose approach to implementation so that you, you harness that sort of, you know, these ideas that you were talking about in self-determination theory, relationships is really a big part of it. And when you're talking about, you know, all of those things on the EEF toolkit, metacognition and peer tutoring and phonics and all these ideas, they're all sort of abstract ideas and you can do them all well and you can do them all really badly. Um, and what's really important is people, like, like implementation and running a school is a people problem. And if you, sure. if you look at it through that lens, then it actually you can go quite a long way to harnessing um, the, the, the agency of people and getting securing their buy-in. And I think that with that in mind, you can make a purely self-restorative system work if everybody is absolutely committed to making that work. And you can make a very harshly punitive system work if everybody thinks that that's the way to go. Um, and it's almost like it's not so much like that phrase, the banana armor effect, people are saying like, it's, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. Yeah. Um, I th like, I, I think that obviously it is what you do and it's the way that you do it, but it is the second part of that it is the way that you do it that I think is increasingly, you know, talking to people in the EEF, the people that they're starting to realize as they look across all of the evaluations that they've done, mm -hmm. a lot of it is about the how, um, at least, at least if not more so than the what. So that's, yeah, a, look, that's it, a biggie. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, the, you know, I guess, I guess I'd be, I'd be betraying my people if I didn't say to you that, out of those two examples, the two polls that you gave, one exists and has worked in mainstream schools, and the other I'm unaware of. I've I've re I regularly um, ask 
for examples of schools that do not have consequences in their behavior policy of just like a standard mainstream state comprehensive with no consequences in their policy and yet they have happy staff and good behavior and i regularly get nothing every so often someone you know points me towards this prue or that prue or that alternative provision i'm like i'm like great different context i'm looking for just a state comp i don't know let's say 10 to 20 percent pupil premium 10 20 percent eal mm. you know that kind of thing just like a normal school um and just with no consequences Every, and someone always points to you know then brings up this particular state comp somewhere and then i go online and they've either got rubbish progress eight like drastic terrible progress eight or i look at their behavior policy online and it's full of consequences so you know i've seen one work i've seen one work right and, and again, I don't work at Michaela. I don't want to work at Michaela. I'm very happy at my school, but behavior is a struggle. It's really difficult. I've seen schools where you can have perfect behavior with consequences, with teachers giving detentions and sanctions and the like, perfect behavior, happy students, happy staff. I am yet to see the other side of things. And, 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 and again, like you have a different audience to the one that I'm normally involved with. If somebody tells me about a particular school, praise be. I would be more than happy to see it, but but my uh, my my eyebrow is most certainly raised. Yeah, I mean I'm not talking about examples of schools that have like zero consequences, but I know for example of schools that have gotten rid of detentions um, sure. as a thing. You know, you yep. could argue that there's a you know there's not a clear clear cut case for detentions, given that lots of the, the kids who get detentions are in detention week in week out. Like sure. clearly it isn't working, and you could argue maybe it works as a deterrent. But I know that schools that have moved in that direction. And we, yeah, we, it works for the ninety percent of the kids who aren't in detention the whole time. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Let's let's come back then. You've you've done a very uh, thorough job, I think, of of um, of presenting the case for traditionalism. I think in this conversation, it seems to be the sort of the big idea and this, the journey that you have been on um, from from previously sort of being like what did you call it a devout believer in discovery learning um, to having this one eighty turn and really recognizing that um that traditionalism was the way to go for you and many other people have been on that journey so let's get back to this to this tweet <laughs> i don't uh, know where, i don't i don't know where this is going particularly but um let's round <laughs> let's round this up so so i wrote and i quote um Neo-traditionalism sells an attractively simple story, and this is focused. I feel like I'm fr overframing it now. This, this was. I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about classroom practice rather, rather than behaviour, right? And all the other things that we've been talking sure, about. I was yeah. thinking about the actual pedagogy of, of, yeah, of yeah. traditionalist teaching, and essentially, I would I would phrase it as like direct instruction in a knowledge-rich curriculum, right? I think yeah. that those two are the sort of the, the the two the two big pillars. Neo-traditionalism sells an attractively simple story knowledge is foundational and learning is memory therefore we only need to double down on teaching subject knowledge and helping kids remember stuff and all will be well if only it were true okay so uh, so your initial response was you said that's not true <laughs> at all <laughs> big straw man and I think you're better than that and then I asked you to sort of elaborate and I was like okay prove me wrong and you replied uh, that I was confused he said you are confusing means and ends in a bid to unfairly caricature traditional teachers and teaching as somehow reductive and myopically focused on process of learning rather than outcomes 
And you also said uh, that I was ignoring that most traditional teachers believe that there are many more ingredients to successful education or equal society than children just learning things, as if the thousands of traditional teachers in high people premium schools don't know about wider contextual factors. And then you did forward slash end. So the, you, were like, you were quite pleased with that being the end of the end of the, the, the discussion. So I just thought it would be useful to to sort of to return to this. I mean, have you got anything else to add to that before I sort of uh, offer offer a response? Um, yeah, I think I think I mean the 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 main point that I that I bristled at was the because this is a common one on Twitter where people say you know all these trans they say they care that much but like they don't realize you know what it's like life is like for these kids or you don't see them criticizing the Tories or whatever and I think that's you know I think that's just so limp and it's not it's not it's not worth considering um and then the the, the means ends point I'll, I'll I'll try and illustrate with a story if that's all right mm. and um the story is of um, a lady called Mary, the super scientist. Do you know about Mary, the super scientist? So Mary, the super scientist is um, she, she's a super scientist. She knows her, her field of science is light. So she knows absolutely everything there is to know about light. She knows um, wait, about wavelengths, the electromagnetic spectrum. She knows about absorption, transmission, reflection, refraction, all of the above. She knows how to calculate the energy that's carried by light, the speed that it's traveling in, wave-particle duality. She knows absolutely everything there is to know about light. She's completely self-taught, completely self-taught. The thing is, Mary, her entire life, has lived in one room. And in that room, everything in that room is just black and white. There are no colors whatsoever in that room. So she's learned everything she knows about light from textbooks that don't have color. She's never seen color. One day, a door to her room opens and she goes outside and she sees color for the first time. Now, this is a thought experiment from a philosopher called John Searle. And it's there to illustrate the difference between a computer and the human mind. As far as a computer is concerned, from the books, it's learned everything there is to know about light. There is nothing to know about light that Mary does not know, except what light feels like, except what it is like, what's called the qualia, what it is like to experience light. And that's a great thought experiment. It's lovely, isn't it? Right? The feeling of what it's like. That's what she's learned. And that's where he stops, because he's his the point of why he's bringing it up is to illustrate the difference between the way that human mind experiences and that that experience is knowledge itself. Um, and it counts as knowledge, even though a computer will never have it. He stops there. But I, I continue um, because Mary has a brother called Des. Right. This is where I extend the thought experiment. Des is similar to Mary in that he's been brought up in a black and white room. And he's got the same textbooks, he's got the same access to those textbooks that she does. But Des, he's not as bothered to learn about light, and he just spends the time throwing a ball against the wall. Bump, 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 the whole time. So while she's studying and learning everything there is to know about light, he's just chucking it, right? A door opens for him as well, and he goes out into the world. And he sees the same things that she sees. 
and he sees the color of the trees, the grass, the water, the sky, the clouds, everything around him. He sees exactly the same way she does. He learns, this is the key, he learns exactly the same thing that she does. What did she learn? She learned what it is like to feel light and to experience it. He learns what it is like to feel light and experience it. But answer me this, whose experience is richer? So you're going to say Mary. Always Mary. Because Mary's experience isn't just, oh, that's what green is. Mary's experience is, ah, oh, that's green. That's the absorption of red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, and violet from the sun. And the reason why those colors are being absorbed is because there's chlorophyll in the grass and it's doing photosynthesis and it's using the leftover energy within its, you know, various Krebs cycle and all. I think I got that one right. Krebs cycle to, to produce, you know, energy to release energy and produce glucose and all of that she's learning from looking at this blade of grass and she's looking around and she's tying all of those experiences to all of the things that she knows and the reason why the sky is blue and the clouds are white and the grass is green and the trees are brown and all of that is like it's like a, it's like a depth of experience that is completely cut off from des des does not have this experience whatsoever sure it might be a great experience but it's not of the same level it's not of the same quality that mary's experience is the, the the difference between them of course is the stuff that they know right the point of the point of if i was mary's teacher the point of me teaching mary wouldn't just be by the way this is part of the point of teacher but it wouldn't just be because i think it's important for people to know about light but it's so that when she does go out into the world her experience of that light is all the richer and if i don't give her that then she becomes someone like this and she goes out and she experiences light, she experiences all the same things that everybody else does, but she doesn't experience them with the same richness that she could. Mm -hmm. And so, that, that's why it's not just about, it's not, it's not just about memory and then all will be well. It's, it's about the because, it's about the so what. And yet I'm not going to deny that part of education is people getting a job. I'm not going to deny that part of education is an inculcation to the traditions, norms, and cultural mores of society. I'm not going to deny that part of it is about transmitting the goods and the intellectual heritage and the you know cultural artifacts of society. But it's also just about making people's lives better and just like richer and so that every experience that they have means more. And sure, that comes from their memory, but I'm not doing it just because I want to stuff things into their memory like some columnist in the guardian says like, i'm trying to stuff idle or inert or boring facts into their minds i'm doing it for a reason there's a purpose there and i think that's that's the key thing that i think people don't get about traditionalist teachers yeah i can see what you're saying and that reminds me of is there a thing is it like was it richard feynman or i can't remember if it was douglas adams or somebody who said there was a similar idea that um somebody was saying that a scientist can't see the beauty of a flower because they're sort of their head is full of like equations yep. about photosynthesis and he was saying well actually i can see the flower and i can see the beauty and the light but i can also see the fact that it's designed to attract insects and i can see all of these layers of stuff that's going on and it only adds to the wonder for, for me it doesn't detract yeah, from right. it in some sense and i can see the point that you're making um and, and, and actually by the way by the way to add to that in the spectrum in the other direction right your average punter looking at the leaf might feel its beauty sure the flower might feel its beauty but someone who is an artist would feel it also in a different way right so it's not just that the scientist sees it in a different way but the the person who's an artist and understands light and composition and all of that 
will also have a different experience. Yeah. And, and that's what we're trying to transmit to the students. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So, so I mean, that's sort of an argument for, for knowledge, right? Like that if we furnish them with knowledge, that they will have this depth of understanding that it's not just about passing a test. This is like the, this is the raw material with which we experience and perceive the world and so on. And I, and I, I buy into that. Um, and, and when I think about neo-traditional, like, so for example, like, like I, I, um, I spent the last 10 years of my life sort of research, designing and teaching this learning to learn curriculum and then, sure. and then evaluating it and so on. And it, and it had this tremendous impact and it was not an anti-knowledge thing like there's knowledge that goes into learning to learn for example if you to we talk you mentioned oracy earlier we're having a conversation about how how does good what does good group work look like or what does what's the language around debate or you know the rhetorical techniques in a, in a you know in some presentational talk say or you know project management skills whatever it is that we're doing in learning to learn there's knowledge that goes into that and the kids who went through this program performed significantly better in their subject learning across the piece which was the whole point of what we were doing was yep. like how can we get them to become more effective learners in such a way that they actually achieve better in their subject learning across the piece and they did and so i don't think that that, that direct instruction um has a monopoly on subject knowledge you know there are there are other ways that we can you know talking about means and ends again i think that there are other ways that we can serve that knowledge agenda um and that you know there, there were examples of things that we did in the i'll give you an example in the in the learning to learn curriculum in, in year seven we did a a project where we took the kids to the library and we said you know you've got to do a group research project but uh, you can only look at these these shelves here and we learned that the hard way because the first time we did a project we let them go on any <laughs> shelves and they just did ones about you know footballers and fast cars and what have you so the second time we're like you're only allowed to look at these shelves here and it was shelves that was like basically stuff that they could do at university but that weren't really on offer in the school curriculum so it was things like you know astronomy and there was sure. politics stuff and anthropology and you know um design and technology photography whatever it might be and um and there was this one girl who found this book about feminism it was like a really old dog-eared book about feminism from the 1970s and she was like immediately like the word just struck with her and she was like okay i'm, I'm doing something about feminism mm. so they were in groups of three and they had to come back to the classroom and they had to um they had to agree on a topic. So she wanted to do feminism and the boy that was in her group, there was three in the group, but one of them was absent that day. He had found this um, this big like coffee table book full of photographs about South America. He'd never he heard of this whole continent sure. before. He was looking at pictures of the Andes and the cultures and stuff that was going on. And he was like, right, I'm doing it about Latin America. Like, I'm not gonna not do that. And so the, we came back to the classroom and we gave them time to sort of explore their, their um you know their books and to figure out what they wanted to do as a, as a team and then i remember just sort of overhearing them and like neither of them wanted to give up their thing and then the boy sort of suggested he was like well why don't we do the history of feminism in latin america <laughs> yeah i was like oh my god that's unbelievable and then the third kid came back in the next lesson and he was like obsessed with china he just was like doodling like chinese calligraphy all the time so they ended up doing a comparative like history of the of feminism in china and latin america and they ran with this this was a six-week project right so we sort of we let, let them loose and that was a big part of what we were doing in learning to learn was taking a step back because one of the things that i sort of have a concern about about all of this sort of that being on the front foot um very sort of traditionalist direct instruction model is that it's very sort of teacher-led by its nature 
and I think there's like there's this incredible um there's a quote let me see if I can find it I put it out earlier we put it we used it in the book um by Monique Bocart who says about how in traditional classrooms there's not much room for self-regulated learning students are cognitively emotionally and socially dependent on their teachers who formulate the learning goals determine which types of interaction are allowed and aren't allowed and generally coerce them to adjust uh, to the learning environment that they the teachers have created and coerce is a strong word and it's another sort of emotive word but you can see her point like that, that's a question that i often have like when we um when we lead so much from the front and in schools that are very top-down organizations how can the kids learn how to self-regulate in such a micromanaged culture where we sort of we set a deadline and if it looks like they're not going to hit that deadline we swoop in and intervene and we sort of we do all of this stuff to get them up to the point where they do they get the best possible set of results that they can get and we think that that's like the best thing we, i know in the conversation that we had earlier we talked about how you know john Thompson has a line that he's used in his blog and also in his book where he said that, that the best pastoral care that you can get that you can provide for for a young person from a disadvantaged background is a fantastic set of examination results and um i can see why he thinks that and obviously there's a there's a big dollop of truth in it but part of me just wonders like is that actually true and like is 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 a set of exam results better than than teaching them how to teach themselves how to leave school in with a disposition towards learning so that they can be intellectually curious and confident enough to see that through um, and i'm not sure that that I, I, like, and, and this is not an anti-traditionalist thing like, mm. i'm not anti-traditional and, and one of the phrases that we use in our book is that we you know when we're talking about things like project-based learning and oracy and philosophy for children and so on lots of people and group work, lots of people would look at that as, as very sort of progressive sounding stuff, but we would teach that stuff in really traditional ways. You know, we would model what a good conversation looks like and what a bad conversation looks like. We would give them opportunities to practice it. It's like deliberate practice. We give them rich feedback, the opportunity to respond to that feedback and you build it up over time, you know, and you would, you know, you scaffold your support and you can, you know, so this idea that you can achieve progressive ends through traditional means, I think is an important one but I do think that at some point and and I'm, I mean that at some point within the within secondary schools we need to find a way to step back so that so that the young people can find out what they can and can't do under their own steam because you know as soon as they leave school whether they've got nine straight A's or what you know anything downwards of that or level nines or whatever um, that's not necessarily going to set them up for a life where there isn't going to be a teacher who's going to tell them what to do and when and how all the time and you know and even for those you know there was a phrase that ian cunningham used um in uh in the, the whatever it was episode four of this podcast where he said he was talking about the bankers who were responsible for the 2008 crash and he described them as well schooled but poorly educated you know this sure. idea that there is we're not we're not only talking about you know the sort of the, the the third who are who are made to fail and that's a whole separate conversation but even the kids who succeed in this in this um system that we have um i'm not entirely persuaded that that 
you know, direct instruction and a knowledge-rich curriculum, important though those things are, I'm not saying that we should not do that. I think that that's like the core, but I think mm. that we should do that and we should do more to address this this other agenda because I just don't feel like we're setting people up for for a life of learning where learning never ends. And, you know, when we look at, if I could just finish with one more thing, I was looking at, um, you know, the, the extent to which people read or don't read. We mentioned this briefly yesterday, but I looked at some stats. There's a recent survey that was uh, revealed that on estimate, an estimated 4 million adults in the UK never read a book. Um, and that, that is, you know, differentiates by socioeconomic background. So uh, more than one in four adults from the poorest ba socioeconomic background say they never read, compared with just 13% of those from, from wealthier backgrounds. Um, and I just wonder, you know, like, to what, like, like, with the best intention, with that sort of, with that, you know, that phrase of John Thompson, it's like we're doing, we're doing the best by these kids to get them the best possible results. And neo-traditionalism is like it's an efficiency model. It's like, and all the stuff that we're talking about, behaviour, and and you know, alleviating workload. I totally buy into everything that you're doing, um, but I think that we're. we're, we're sort of operating within a system that's all about getting kids to get the like to get the maximum possible amount of grades for every possible kid mm. and actually i'm just not completely persuaded that that that's like i think it's necessary but not sufficient you know i think that there needs to be more to an education than that yeah yeah it's it's good that you said necessary but not sufficient because that's what i was going to open with <laughs> <laughs> i think um i think that tom sit quote is is key for me here because i think to, i think to start with we're talking about something which is very complex right and there are a lot of interlinking variables clearly so for example um you know getting a student to a good grade in history not only is gonna help them get a job but it's also gonna increase the chance of them being interested in history right and reading in history Right. I, I, you know, I don't think you'd find anyone that doubts that when you're talking about probabilities, right? That learning being, you know, we, we spoke about self-determination theory, right? So motivation is partly based on competence, right? So if I don't know, you know, I, I guess like, a, like a, a good example here would be just any academic paper, right? I could give a chemistry academic paper to someone who had studied literature. They wouldn't know where to start and they wouldn't bother starting, right? So your knowledge opens, um, things to you and that's obviously not going to be the only thing right i teach students i'm very proud of the fact that i teach students chemistry and they get a very good chemist grade in chemistry even though they hate chemistry i can't control that right i can i can i can help make it better there will always it's a fixed possibility there will always be some students who just really really don't enjoy it if i can still get them to their grade right then then i've done then, then i've done a great thing but obviously, I've not guaranteed that they're then going to be interested as chemists for the rest of their life because they didn't enjoy it, right? So the relationship doesn't necessarily happen, right? D does that does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can't I can't guarantee all of these wonderful things by doing brilliant direct instruction, but I increase the chances of them happening, which is why, by the way, in project follow through on the affective measures, direct instruction was also the highest. Right. So direct instruction not only beat the other 31 teaching techniques on their students' knowledge of English and maths and on their general cognitive abilities, but it also defeated all the other um, topics on their enjoyment 
of the course and of maths and English generally. Now, obviously, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship and it's not guaranteed, but you're increasing the chance. So when I, when, you know, I can't speak for John Thompson, but when I talk about my need, my, 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 my burning need at all else to get these students their grades, it's not because I think they'll turn into lifelong learners. It's because without those grades, doors will be closed to them. And yes, honestly, like I wish, I wish I could say to you that, um, that I think for, you know, many students, it's both possible and plausible to just like turn them into lifelong learners. But like, you know, those, those one in four people, uh, so would you say the, the four million people who don't read books? Like, why is that? Did, did they have direct instruction in English literature when they were in school? Probably not. They probably did group work. They probably did the speeching and listening GCSE exam, which doesn't exist anymore. Well, you but, know, there's, there's something interesting there. I saw recently there was a Sutton Trust report recently that looked at uh, uh, literacy and numeracy uh, levels among different ages throughout the population. And the age group that performed best um, was 55 to 65. Yeah. People who were who were taught before there was a national curriculum, before there was sure. national literacy hour and numeracy hour. Yeah. And so <clears throat> this is a, this is again, this is something that I'm I'm not entirely persuaded that all of this stuff that we're doing is actually um, going in the right direction. And if I can yeah. just if I can just pull it back for a second to, to that tweet. Um, one of the things that I was talking about, about the, 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 the neo-traditionalism selling an attractively simple story that it's all about knowledge and memory and so on and direct instruction. I think that there is also a strain of like of sort of like intolerance that I sometimes see on the behalf. I'm not saying that this comes from you. I've not seen it from you, but from people who would describe themselves as as, as traditionalist, um, I think that there's often of like people who are very dismissive of certain things. I'll give you an example, and this is from. The book that you edited, the the um, the uh, <laughs> well, I'm not gonna, I'm not laying any blame at your door here, but so, so I'm assuming that so, so, the editor. So well, yeah, but Tom Bennett wrote the foreword. I'm assuming that uh, you don't get to edit the foreword, do you? He's uh, the series editor. Who knows? He 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 said he wrote in that. Um, let me just find it quick. I've, I've copied it's it. It's available now. in all good bookshops, it's, by the way. Yeah, um, the, the bit that I read, I've not got it. I, I, I will admit, but I, I read the looking. I read as far as I could get on look inside on Amazon. So in the <clears throat> in the introduction, Tom's talking about um, about how previously people were, were concerned with teaching students how to work well in groups, be creative, and be tolerant, and so on. Um, and he then goes on to to say that these these approaches are as far removed from the ideal as homeopathy is from open heart surgery right and that's like i mean that's a an incredible thing to say um and not true you know and, and i think that maybe i don't know i mean so tom has got a very sort of like um like strongly rhetorical style of writing right and he you know he, used, he uses humor a lot um and i don't know whether i mean it's hard to know whether that's a joke or not but i'm not sure that it is i think that you know, given that what i've read of him and you know talking about you know things like neuro neurolinguistic programming and and yeah. all of that other stuff that that you know he wrote about in was it teacher proof that book where he was and, yeah. and he included learning to learn in the list of things that he thought were a waste of time um 
But to say that, that, that teaching kids how to work well in groups and how to be creative and be tolerant is to good teaching what homeopathy is to open heart surgery just seems to me to be like, well, just like ridiculous and, and, and clearly not true. And um, I can see you're, you're scanning the book there to see if I'm, I'm quoting him correctly. Um, but the, the, the point, my point is that it seems to me that it's clear that there needs to be a balance struck. And this is the conversation that we were just having. Shall I give you a moment to just like check my quote? No, it's not that I'm checking it. It's that, okay. you know, look, I, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, he is using colorful language. I think the the pushback that he would give, I mean, maybe, I don't know, I'm not him. I can't speak for him. Of course, Tom isn't here to defend his forward. Yeah, the, 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 the pushback that I would give is that I think the I think this, the standard trad attack line would be to, to go off on one about domain specific skills um, and say that you know things like collaboration are domain specific. So your your ability to collaborate, in a particular area depends on your domain knowledge in that area. So I guess, you know, in, in the same way that like, um, you know, I collaborate very well on building a science curriculum. If somebody said to me, okay, can you, um, you know, I'm a manager of a FTSE 100 company. Could you just come in and uh, give me some tips about how to run my board meeting? I'd be like, well, no, because like, I don't know anything about running a FTSE 100 company. So my ideas about leadership and collaboration are dependent on the things that I know and the context that I know. And, and I have, I, I have, you know, aside from there being quite a bit of empirical evidence to support that, I have very strong sympathy with it because I know from like just my personal life on reflection, that whilst I'm very verbose and opinionated about say education, I'm much less so about things I don't really know much about. And, and, I, and I'm, I, I feel much more reluctant and anxious about getting into discussions about things that I don't know a lot about. And I, don't, I think that existed before I was, you know, a traditional teacher, that anxiety. Um, and the same applies, you know, we did a, like a, you know, like at school, I'm the leader. I'm, I'm clearly the head of department. I'm the boss. I'm in charge, right? I did an escape room for a, uh, for a mate stag. I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, honestly, like I didn't know how, I didn't know where to put myself in the group. I didn't know what tasks to take on. I, I didn't know who to take guidance from. I didn't know where to get feedback from. I didn't know. Yeah. It, it made me like feel a bit anxious as someone who's normally very confident, very assured, knows exactly what he's doing. I, I was, I was at sixes and sevens. So I do have some strong sympathy for that. I, you know, so the thesis would be the, you know, let's get Hegelian over here, right? So the thesis would be the 2000 to 2010 era where group work is king, um, where just by, just by doing group work, they magically become better at working in groups. Um, just by having students talk in class, they get better at oracy. Um, just by having them, um, 
take ownership of projects or decide what they want to do in some homework project on building a castle out of random tech you got from Hobbycraft or whatever, they become more creative, all of that. And like, and, and I don't think it's, I, I would strongly refute anyone to say things weren't like that because they were like that. And in many places they still are like that. That's the thesis. The antithesis is that that's all nonsense. Direct instruction, forget all of that crap. You can't teach these soft skills, right? You had Guy Claxton on last week, right? So, so or whenever, right? So Guy Claxton was all about those soft learning skills, the building learning power. Right. To this day, to my knowledge, there's no quantitative evidence that suggests that building learning power is a good idea. Right. So so, the you know, that stuff, that stuff happened. Right. And people did it and people are still promoting it. I've still got the building learning power posters in one of my classrooms. Right. But like, you know, uh, you know, you say to someone, yeah, one of these learning skills is resilience. You can just like you know, teach it to the students and like talk about resilience and give them inspirational stories of people who are resilient and stuff like that. OK, so 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 the antithesis has to come. The thesis is that the antithesis is that no resilience is, of course, domain specific. That I show tremendous resilience uh, when I'm at work and I have a very strong upper lip uh, and all of the above. But when it comes to other contexts, things that I don't know, like like am I bullshit and negotiating with my team or or with you know SLT about things that I want my team to have? Yes, absolutely. Do would I want to put myself up against a hardened used car salesman? Under no circumstances whatsoever. I would lose every single time. Right. But if they came into school, there's no way they'd be able to work their way around me and talk about some educational policy that I didn't like and get it past me. Mm. So the antithesis has to come. Now, of course, Hegel would argue there's got to be a synthesis at some point. And I think I think it's fair to say, you know, I think you've demonstrated yourself that this stuff can be done responsibly. Um, and I think I've acknowledged in this meet, in this you know conversation that stuff like group work can be done responsibly. Things like discovery learning, project based work, inquiry learning, they can be done responsibly at a certain point in time and in a certain context. You know, I acknowledge that. What I do think and 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 what I would be really careful to say, and I think this is similar to the point that I made about the schools when you the, the behavior right is that i think there are far fewer examples of people doing the stuff that you've done and getting it right than there are of a people getting it wrong and there are of a people getting direct instruction right you know you go to you know i, I think i think i said see this to you in an early meeting the stuff that they do for example at michaela around oracy around collaboration you know my friend pratesh right pratesh raichuri is the head of science at michaela he is an incredible you know he's an incredible science teacher i've seen him teach firsthand and via videos he is very very talented and he loves he absolutely loves his students and they love him back and you know he does think pair share regularly in his class it's like a it's a standard feature it's not a bug it's like a normal part of the lesson oracy is there and then the, and then and then students who speak in a way that he doesn't think is good enough he will pause them and he will say use formal register or he will say project and he will make them speak from their diaphragm and he will make them speak in appropriate domain specific language and in a quality that would be acceptable to the highest echelons of society and in a way that would you know i guess to, to co-op some ed hirsch it would not make them feel out of place at eton or harrow or haberdashers or westminster or anywhere and i think that's a tremendously tremendously powerful thing so so yes i you know i i most certainly acknowledge that there is you know that there is stuff there that it, that that is both possible and feasible and I agree with you that a lot of the time that is done through direct instruction. Yeah, of course, like if, if it's, you know, if, if I put, you know, so I did, I did like a little quiz last, the last week of term, I've got, I've got a very difficult year nine set in, they're incredibly challenging, both behavior, academic, everything, right? Um, I took them on 
you know, without being too hero about it, I took them on from somebody else because they're a nightmare, right? And um, and yeah, I did like a little quiz with them. Um, I did a little quiz with them at the end to a bit of confidence build, you know, that kind of thing. And I put them in pairs and I gave them a point for every correct answer. And um, a, a group got it wrong. And the girl had written the wrong answer. And the boy who she was with had said, and I heard him say, he said, he said, are you dumb? It's not that, right? And then I took all of the the responses and I, and I said, I said, I said, I said, also, by the way, guys, I'm really sorry, but I'm actually going to deduct points from your team because I think it's completely unacceptable to turn around to your partner and call her dumb. I don't think you can say that to someone. I would never, ever do something like that to you. Can you imagine how hurt you'd feel if I said to you, when you got something wrong in my class, are you dumb? You'd feel unsafe. You'd feel anxious. You'd feel stupid. And you'd feel like this classroom wasn't for you. I would never do that to you. I don't expect you to do that to somebody else. And he took it on the chin and we spoke about it afterwards and he understood what I was saying. Now, obviously, like, I'm not going to turn around to you and say, no, you know what? Social, emotional skills like that, they can't be taught. They're domain specific. So there's no point doing that. Like, obviously, I'm not going to say that to you. I'm a teacher. And, and part of my job is to teach these students to, to become beautiful human beings and, and to kind of limit and exercise that part of themselves that falls short of that. But, you know, but equally, I have to be realistic mm. about you know, what's possible and what's not possible. And I, you know, I, sure, we could do that all day, every single day. And, and, and you wouldn't agree with that either. So there has to be a point in the middle where you say, right, well, we've got our like core content and like curriculum that we need to do. We've also got all this extra stuff. We need to have a very careful balance, both between what's possible on both sides and, and, and what's, what's pragmatic. We don't have the kids the whole time. You know, we don't keep them with us around the clock. You know, and, 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 and part of traditional teaching is about trying to do that as well. But it's it's about doing it, I guess, in a more um, like in a way that's kind of like. Um, that's more it's not done as like a separate program. It's it's almost part and parcel. So, you know, when I'm talking to my students about effective study habits, when I'm when I'm when I'm calling someone at home and I'm telling them how they need to set up their desk in order to work. When I'm telling a student off because of the way they spoke to their mum, all of that is important to me and it's, it's, it's a part of my job, right? And, and, there are, and to be sure, there are some traditional teachers who don't think it should be part of their job. Okay, it is part of my job. And I would imagine that out of the 450,000 teachers in this country, 445,000 of them would say that it's a really important part of their job and it's one that they care about tremendously. I guess I would say the way we do it is maybe different. Yeah, I want my students to be excited outside of the classroom. I want them to know about feminism. I want them to know about Latin American feminism. Sure. Okay. So how am I going to do that? Is it going to be by taking them to a library and just saying, you know, go find a book that's interesting? Or is it the way that I tailor my instruction and the stories that I tell about my story? I tell a lot of, I tell a lot of stories about my life to my students. I tell them a lot of things about my personal life that I don't necessarily tell to everybody else. My students know that I have two children. Uh, they know that my two children call me Abba and they know that my two children call my wife Emma. They know the things that I have in my house. They know the things that I like to eat. They know the places that I've gone on holiday. Not because like, I think it's cool to talk to them about it outside, but like they know that I went to Cornwall because I spoke to them about the time I went down a tin mine with my wife. And, and we, and we spoke and I spoke to them about how in this mine, the, the tunnels were about a foot and a half tall. And they used to send children down, 10 year olds, 11 year olds, and they would have nothing but a, a leather hat with a wax candle stuck to it. And these kids would go down before it got light in the morning and they'd come up after it got dark in the evening and they'd be on their hands and feet in the water in the dark all day 
mining tin. And I would talk to my students about how grateful they should be that they're not those students. And then I would say, and by the way, when I was in the tin mine, I saw this beautiful blue streak of rock on the wall. And that's tin oxide. That's what they were mining. That's what they were trying to hack out. Like, you can't tell me that I'm not building the student's character by that. But I'm doing it in a way that I know and in a way that is like deeply personal to me and is and, and is and is a part of my instruction. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And that sounds a lot like uh, synthesis to me. There was another thing that you said in response to that tweet, you described it as divisive. And I accept that that it was divisive, you know, using the even just using the phrase uh, like the neo traditionalism is X, Y or Z. It's sort of it's just an unhelpful label, I think. Um, although in its defense, it did get more response to my normal tweets. And it ended up with you coming on the podcast, right? So well, it worked. Well, well, things end well all things end well because i do want to want to blow open this conversation in a way i'd, I'd like to do another one with you where we start we start at the point that we're at now because I've, I've got to go in a minute and to pick up my son um about um you know what what does this what does this balanced curriculum look like in practice let's let's move let's let's start with this synthesis we we accept that the, the skills heavy stuff under new labor is bad we can accept that actually dismissing group work as as nonsense is actually really unhelpful and that we need something that's really balanced here and what does that actually look like and that's a thing that that uh, just as a final as a final point you know it feels to me like lots of the stuff that i see people writing about and talking about and thinking about within the sort of traditional um umbrella if you like is um it seems to me that it's quite an individualistic account of what's going on like cognitive load theory and about like furnishing things in memory and testing and so on and it's and it's it's there's a balance to be struck here right that's a better than thing like like helping kids to do but to do better in their subjects and helping them to get really good exam grades is like that's quite an individualistic pursuit how can i be better than other people in the exam like that's literally what exams are it's a zero-sum game and it's useful to do that right we want some we want some competition we want some individual pursuit individual sort of self-actualization but there's also collective stuff and it seems like that stuff that tom bennett was dismissing the stuff about group work what were the examples group work tolerance was the other one these are things that typically people who are on the progressive side of the aisle tend to be more interested in they're more interested in like social and emotional aspects of learning and things that are more like about recognizing my friend kate McAllister has a nice phrase she's like we should be teaching kids how to live in a in a world that's made of other people you know sure. and it seems to me that we're not doing a massively good job of teaching people how to get along with each other and my goodness like five minutes on twitter or staring at the news <laughs> will 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 confirm that to you so i'm really keen to um to have more of a, like a granular conversation about what that might look like in terms of a school curriculum or in and you know the, the the examples that you're talking about you about using narrative and using stories in classes are really rich examples of what that can look like in practice but i'd love to have that conversation some of the time i think it will have to be because um you know i think that we could both talk um till the end of time it feels like but um we're gonna have to draw this to a close at some point so now feels like as good a time as any unless you've got anything else to to add well no just just, just as a postscript to point out that yeah i think there is a synthesis there to be had i think that that line of synthesis is still going to be closer to my side and <laughs> <than it was laughs> I, I, no, I think that's an important postscript because because it is important to me that like that that I don't want people to come away from this thinking, oh, you know, Adam thinks no best way overall, or Adam thinks it's all about the way that you do things. I think there is there is a point 
at which um, I moderate and shift, but I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shifting here towards the middle. You know, like the group, the group work is a great example. Like I think it does work. I think my maths team gets it and they get it and they get it right. I think there's probably a handful of maths departments in the entire country that could do what they do. Right? There's probably, you know, there's probably a couple of dozen departments generally in the country that could do what they do. So yes, I'm acknowledging that it works, but I'm not shifting a huge distance. Right. To be continued. To be continued. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, sharing your evening with me. I really enjoyed it. I did too. Good stuff. All right. And remember, uh, remember, divisive isn't always bad. I know, right? That's the awful thing. We're all playing this game, aren't we? Like the newspapers do it and we're all like, oh, isn't it bad? If it bleeds, it leads. We're just spreading the misery. But like you write a lovely balanced tweet like I've been doing for the last 10 years. That's why I've not got any followers on Twitter. <laughs> Time is a measure of change.